Hey everyone, Chris here. I just wanted to give you a heads up before we got started. This episode of the podcast features a brand new Quantum Deep segment by Hayden McQueenie with special guest star Albert Burge. However, at no point during the show will you hear Matt, Allison, or me mention this because we didn't get the segment until after we had done the main recording. So you're going to be listening along and boom, all of a sudden there's a Quantum Deep segment and then it goes away again and we never mention it, we never reference it, and such are the verities of podcasting. On with the show. Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own, and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 76, Leaping of the Shrew. I guess so, yeah. I was so scared. It's okay, everything's gonna be alright. It's alright, right. You're not David. I'm not. Uh, Where are we? Where is everybody else? Oh, well, we're not sure, Sam, but you're somewhere in the middle of the central Aegean Sea. Where's my trunk? Oh, I'm sorry I didn't get here sooner, but we're making preparations for Tina's birthday and she it wants me to pop up, up out of the birthday cake. There it is, there it is, it's sinking. The Aegean Sea, Al, Al, what, what, south of Greece, north of Crete, where? Right over there, you greasy little man. Uh, this is Vanessa Foster of the Philadelphia Foster. She's got more dough than Pillsbury. And And since you don't have any supplies whatsoever, I'd go get the trunk. Oh, my God. David. Who's David? My fiancé. My late fiancé. No, he's still alive. Uh, your fiancé's fine. How do you know? I, uh... Uh, he's, he's on a raft with the captain he's and the He's in the, the captain's and the raft. And they're gonna get picked up. The ship went and down. they're gonna get picked up in about three hours, ten minutes. I gave him my place. You had a place on the captain's raft? Your name is Nikos Stathatos. 
Born in Piraeus, Greece, February 12, 1935. And yeah, you worked with the diesels in the yacht. David and Vanessa here were going to get married at sea tomorrow. So I'm here to rescue her. You know, you never talked to yourself when we were on the ship. This act. Well, in the original history, she eventually got rescued, then she met up with David, and they went to Crete and had their wedding. Then why am I here? Uh, well, uh, we don't we don't know for sure, uh, but you're on the main shipping lanes here, uh, so that you should get picked up before nightfall. You blew up the ship because you had to have a smoke. I knew it. You were following me. Answer the question. I didn't know it was still lit when I put it in that cigarette can. This is serious, Sam. What have you been doing here? That's what you told me. No, Sam, you must be doing something wrong here because your odds of survival are going down faster than I can read. What's the problem? The problem is that I'm stuck on a leaky life raft with a crazed barbarian who talks to himself. Well, suddenly you're getting yourself all off course, so you must be doing something wrong, so stop doing it. How can I stop doing something when I'm not doing anything? Well, you better figure it out because Ziggy says a ship should have picked you up an hour ago. You've changed history, Sam. Now, Vanessa and Nikos never get found. <laughs> what do you think you're doing? Yeah, what I, I'm doing the same thing you're doing. You had no right to kiss me. What are you talking about? I, you kissed me. I did not. You seduced me. I have berries to pick, so if you leave me alone. Vanessa, come on. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Christopher D. Philippus. I'm Allison Payne in the Buffalo Pregler. <laughs> and I'm Matt Dale. And we are talking about the season five episode, The Leaping of the Shrew today, or as I like to call it, The Antidote to Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. Bit more upbeat than, than we were for the last recording, talking about uh, conspiracy theories and suicide attempts. <laughs> and Oh, you don't know what's in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... <laughs> You got a conspiracy theory about Brooke Shields? No, Nikos. Did Nikos act alone? <laughs> oh! <laughs> Was he the Greek behind the grassy knoll? Yeah. <laughs> well, we never even talked about the grassy knoll. No! In Lee Harvey Oswald episode. Was the grassy knoll even factored into Lee Harvey Oswald? It wasn't. It's one of the things that they didn't mention. Oh, what have I started? <laughs> because it seems like Grassy Knoll is just like the thing that's always like mentioned, and it wasn't a factor in that episode. That was a little weird. But that's all to do with the conspiracy stuff that Don Belisario writes off, though, right? Oh, so yeah, but they didn't even lip service or nothing. See, we're still talking about it. Like, the recording never ended, actually. Al could have just popped out and popped back again and said, oh, there's a Grassy Knoll across the road. There ain't no one there. Yeah, he could have found out very easily. He could have debunked some of these things. <laughs> <laughs> or just, not even Al, just a random cutaway to an empty grassy knoll. <laughs> <laughs> and then Donald Belisario like, wanders in like, see? <laughs> All that dramatic music. And then just an empty grassy knoll, no music, just crickets. <laughs> and then go back to Sam and then Buster. <laughs> crickets and then cut to Al crying like, oh, it's happening again. Just wanted to make sure that people knew. <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald, the gift that just keeps on giving. Can we talk about Leaping of the Shrew, please? All right, Leaping of the Shrew. Hey, uh, before we start talking about Leaping of the Shrew, we should also mention that uh, later on in this episode, we are proud to bring you a very special interview with Allison's best friend and (gasps) QLP costume designer extraordinaire, Jean-Pierre Dorliac. Wow. It was great talking to him about this. I can't wait to hear this. I'm gutted I couldn't make it for the recording. I'm really looking forward to hearing it. 
Oh, we talked so much crap about you, Matt. Oh my God, Good. Matt. Good. <laughs> and I'm sorry if I just gave the game away. I don't know if Chris was just going to edit me in saying, oh, call Blimey a few times to, <laughs> to make it sound like I was there. <laughs> We're we being honest with the listeners here that I wasn't. Okay, good. It's just, it's just it. Chris doing his impeccable British impression, <laughs> pretending to be a core blimey. <laughs> Mr. Doliak. Pretty good. Yes. Everything I learned, I learned from watching Danger Mouse. Oh. So, leaving the shrew. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to it eventually. I guess we'll get to it eventually. Yeah, there's, there's not much to say about it. Let's talk about Danger Mouse for a bit. <laughs> <Ba-na-na-na>, <ba-na-na-na>. <laughs> Another one of my first loves. Wow, Chris. Well, no one's going to get that reference because Matt and I were talking about Hitchhikers before we started uh, recording. Mm-hmm. That was one of my first loves, which Matt was happy to hear about. But Matt, now you're a Danger Mouse fan too? Yes. Yes, always have been. Not new Danger Mouse, like new Netflix Danger Mouse or like original Danger Mouse? I, I'm talking original Danger Mouse, but I think new Danger Mouse, they, I think they did a really good job of recapturing it. I, I have a oh, lot. Okay. I have a lot of respect for it, but yes, I'm, I'm talking old Danger Mouse. Yeah, classic stuff. Yeah, that used to air on Nickelodeon here in the states, and yeah. I loved it. I thought it was great. So I can even draw Danger Mouse. If anybody would like to see it, maybe I'll draw it live on Facebook or something. Can you draw Danger Mouse and then also recreate your cover for your spec script <laughs> with Danger Mouse? <laughs> I mean, I could try. Can you draw Danger Mouse stood behind a grassy knoll? <laughs> I was taking oh, a drink when you said Sorry. Oh. oh, we're all a little punchy. This is crazy. I, we did need that antidote, didn't we? Yeah. We have an interview with the grassy knoll. <laughs> More crickets. <laughs> I want to tell you guys that I was up on the grassy knoll and I was behind that fence and it is the stupidest place you could ever think of to have a covert shooter because the grassy knoll looks secluded from the street from like where Kennedy was shot. But if you go behind that fence, it's opened onto like just a giant open parking lot. There's no cover there at all. So it's kind of stupid to think that somebody would have been standing behind that fence with a rifle aiming at the president. I mean, there's literally a train station right next to it. So, Oh, man. You debunked it. You did it. Yep. That's it. Conspiracy solved. Case closed. Case closed. That's it. Moving on. You didn't need to write 90 minutes of drama. Moving on. Brooke Shields. All right. So Lee Harvey Oswald, the ship has exploded. We are in the ocean. (laughs) We are in Leaping of the Shrew at the moment. (laughs) Brooke Shields and dreamy Greeks. I told you it was the remedy for Lee Harvey Oswald. It's a balm, a balm yes. on my soul. The um, I want to say there's something weird about the script for uh, Leaping of the Shrew I wanted to mention. Uh, Matt and I have collected scripts for uh, most of the episodes. I think there's just like eight or nine that we don't have. But uh, this is one of them. And this is the only one I've seen a note like this on it. I don't know if you noticed this, Matt. But um, on the uh, cover page, they usually in the right-hand corner have revised script dates. So like whenever you do a new draft, you write out the date that you do the new draft. Oh. And that's how you indicate uh, how many uh, drafts that you have of a uh, of a script uh, before it's finalized. Um, And this one does that. But for the first date, first of all, they they write it out instead. It normally it's like the numbers seven slash 30 slash 92, for instance, is the second uh, revision. And uh, but the first one, it's written out. It says June 26, 1992. And next to it, it says spec comma run. 
I don't know if that's yeah. like I haven't noticed that special speculative. I don't know what that means. Yeah, because usually it's just the date and then first revision, second revision, whatever. But the, yeah, I've never seen a spec run. I don't know what that like. Maybe they had this as an idea for a while, and they were they did some. I don't know what that specifically could mean though. I was distracted by the fact that on this script it's called washed away. Washed away when they're it's so obvious. That would have been um, borderline copyright infringing at that point. <laughs> but but they've crossed it out with Byro, so it's okay. No one will know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If uh, for people who don't know, um, this episode, uh, while there's a lot of Blue Lagoon connections with Brooke Shields, it's really um, a take on uh, Swept Away, which was originally an Italian movie. I don't remember the Italian name, but that's uh, originally um, it was made in the seventies, I think. And they remade it famously with, uh, or infamously, some might say, with Madonna in the 90s uh, in English, and it was called Swept Away. But this was after this, so this was uh, a take on the Italian version, I guess. <laughs> but then they changed the title to be a take on a Shakespearean uh, drama or, or a Shakespeare comedy that has nothing to do with this plotline. Well, if you've ever seen Taming of the Shrew, have I, are you familiar with it at all? Yeah, I've I've been in it. Huh? You've been, I've been in it. I've done, I've done my Shakespeare. You've been in Taming of the Shrew. Well, Am- Amdram, Chris, Amdram. I mean, I'm, I was I was hardly at the Globe, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that you were going to be at the Globe. I just I did this something I didn't know about you. First Hitchhikers, then Danger Mouse, and now you're an actor. When did you? Well, when did you I, shred I, the boards? Oh my God, were you able to use this knowledge when you played that bar patron in that audio drama? <laughs> <laughs> I believe that was called Peer Pressure, Another Water Connection. Yes. Oh my gosh, that would have been a better title than either of these, to be honest. Well, it's funny, you guys will hear John Pierre schooling me on that point that it's based on Swept Away and not Blue Lagoon in the interview later on in the show. So be sure right, to listen to that. we did talk that. about that a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Whoops. So, yeah. So you obviously get the reference then, Leaping of the Shrew. She's just sort of an impossible personality to deal with. And that's what Shakespeare's yeah. play was yes. about. They even have an ADR that they add in where, uh, where Al says, what a shrew. <laughs> just so yes. that you know, she is the titular uh, shrew. Thanks. We didn't get it. <laughs> is that ADR'd over his original line where he's saying, wow, you guys were really swept away together? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> So, Alison, what are your initial impressions of A Leaping of the Shrew? Uh, it's fine. I don't <laughs> dislike it. I, I'm, It's not, like, one that I constantly go to. It's got some funny stuff in it. I like Brooke Shields a lot. I think she's uh, very charming. Um, yeah, that's kind of overall. Okay. Matt, how about you? Charming? Brooke Shields is brilliant in this. She's one of my favourite guest actors of the fifth season. She's even got an accent that's plausible, which is not not that common in season five. Um, <laughs> what accent? She was speaking like Brooke Shields. What are you talking about yeah, I know. accent? I, <laughs> sorry, for, for me, season five is Blood Moon, so, you know, I just... <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm amazed that anyone that's got a, a natural-sounding accent, even if it's only natural because it's their own. Um, <laughs> just, just cut all this, I'm talking crap. It's, um, yeah, Brooke Shields... Brooke Shields is very funny in this. This is a really fun episode. I don't love it, love it, but uh, I sense I feel slightly more positively towards it than, than Alison does. I'm, I'm, no, 
I think I'm pretty much in the same boat. Like, I'm not negative on it, really. It's just, uh... Yeah, you you sounded cagey there. Okay, like, well... Yeah, it's, it's okay. I, I think mm, it's okay. I would say if I was looking at the script as is, I would have done a little more punch-ups. That's my thoughts. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Chris? I'm going to buck the trend, Allison. I'm going to say that this episode was goddamn adorable. Yeah. Or is it a goddamn adorable? I love this episode. Um, I haven't seen it very much. I think I've only seen it two or three times before this. But watching it again before we spoke to Jean-Pierre, I just couldn't believe how much I was laughing. I liked it initially when I first saw it, but maybe it's because we've been so steeped in the drama of Lee Harvey Oswald for such a long time that um, this was just like a breath of fresh air. And it also gave Scott something to do that he doesn't get to do, which is not a lot anyway, but just be very comedic. I thought that this was mm. like a really good comedy episode. And the chemistry between Brooke and Scott is evidence. I think that they were terrific together. So, and that, you know, that's, that's what this entire episode had to ride on because it was basically a bottle episode. It was just the two of them yeah. with mm -hmm. like one set, maybe two sets. And and that was that. So the fact that they both came with their A-game, they made the comedy work, they made the drama work, and it was just a goofy love story. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, <clears throat> this one gets high marks from me. Okay, so there are three, well, four people starring in this, okay? So you got uh, Scott Bakula, Brick Shields, um, Dean Stockwell, and uh, a wrinkly sheet backdrop that's very <laughs> distracting. <laughs> I thought you were talking about uh, Nikos. Samira. Yeah, yeah. Nikos. Okay, five. There's five people starring in this. <laughs> no, 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 six. Six. Grandmama is also in this. Grandmama. That was so good. He's tossing <laughs> things out of the hope chest and then... <laughs> oh my god. No, no way. Not that. What is Don't this? Don't you Grandmama sterling silver. Sunken treasure. What, Grandmama's favorite vase? No, Grandmama. We wanted her at the wedding. All right, she can stay. They do have a lot of good comedy bits. Like, I know I sound a little bit negative. I do think there's a lot of great bits in this. And I think Scott Bakula had a lot of fun stuff to do. I love when Sam's just done. And he's just done through a lot of this episode. Um, <laughs> I love when he's sitting there just angrily chewing on seaweed in the ship. <laughs> well, don't you ever tell anyone I did this. Did what? If one of those tacky tabloids gets a hold of this, I know who I'll come after. You're right. I can see the headlines now. Socialite sucks seaweed. They won't be able to keep it on the stands. Couldn't keep them on the shelves. <laughs> <laughs> I especially like the fact that he caught seaweed because, you know, in, in so many other shows, he would have pulled up some kind of fish in that veil and they would have been like, yeah, and they would have played it. Ew, fish are gross. It's the, the. But instead, the seaweed was just sort of like the perfect joke because that's really what you would catch. <laughs> so the fisherman in me was happy to see that. <laughs> I thought um, there were some great visual gags in this one, too. I liked when Vanessa is on the raft and she's smoking a cigarette and she's got mascara running down her face. She's in the soaking wet uh, evening gown and she's just, like, combing her hair. Like, that's gonna fix anything? <laughs> well, it was good because it sort of played to what the character would have done. It's, it's sort of like her own security blanket. It's sure. just that looking good, you know? Yeah. And... It really was sort of a magical transformation when she goes from that busted up dress 
to that little sailor outfit. I love that sailor outfit. <laughs> but she looked phenomenal. It's just like, okay, nobody can look that good on a boat with no mirror to get dressed for dinner. <laughs> Did you talk to Jean-Pierre about the sailor outfit? Because I love that sailor outfit. Did you ask him about that? We did. He did mention it. I think he said it was kind of ridiculous. He was trying to be ridiculous about it. Which <laughs> Good. It is, but I love it. And she did look great in this episode. Um, Brooke Shields is gorgeous. So mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be hard for her to not look good. But they yeah. did try to keep it, I think, sort of like they were roughing it. And you could see like they were getting progressively more tattered as the episode went on. But you mentioned the wrinkled sheet. Were you talking about the backdrop for their campground or were you talking about the scenery? Was it like Star Trek, the original series level scenery? When they're in the raft, um, Jean-Pierre said this was the setup and this is kind of what I figured it was. They had a big tank uh, outside uh, Universal, wherever, um, where there's like a giant tank of water to pretend that it's the sea. Um, And they put up this canvas backdrop to be the sky but you can see the wrinkles in it. Like, even in SD, yeah. it's pretty evident. Like, it's just a wrinkly sheet. Like, I get they're not really out in the ocean, but it just was, like, not a very good backdrop. <laughs> and I have to say, I, I kind of bought it anyway. I guess I, I just bought into the fantasy of it. And I was thinking until we spoke to Jean-Pierre, did they actually shoot out? I, I can't imagine that what? they did. Yeah, no, see, this is me. Maybe I need glasses. I probably do, but I was just <laughs> like, did they were watching it actually- on your phone on the mobile app. <laughs> <laughs> just admit it. No, yeah. no, I was I had it on the good TV downstairs, but the uh, good TV. Wow. But but you know when they do stuff like that, like um, they can do fun effects stuff that they couldn't do in the ocean. For instance, uh, they have uh, Dean Stockwell standing on a platform next to them, like he's standing on the water, and it's you know how they did it. It's very easy, but it's effective. Because I like when they play with things like that because he's a hologram, so he could be walking, standing anywhere. Yeah, it's a good way to do a practical effect and to uh, turn Dean into Jesus. I think the next time we see him walking on water (laughs) is in the Marilyn Monroe script. I don't think he actually did walk on water in that one. I think that was a cut effects shot. Yeah, but the character. I'm just saying in, in the fiction. Yeah. That's a term I'm going to steal from Matt. He used it a lot in the Lee Harvey Oswald episode, and I like it. Allison, in the fiction, he's walking on water. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, this this seemed like a, an episode that had some callbacks to some some older stuff that they would do particularly season one al is wearing his outfit from the pilot actually he's wearing that um yeah, yeah the he's wearing back. the same pajamas and uh and robe it. the hand-painted robe that he wears in the pilot which we haven't seen since then and uh they have this whole subplot for him about tina's birthday he keeps talking yes. about like the the project is preparing yeah. for Tina's birthday, and and you won't believe what she wants him to not wear. <laughs> All this stuff <laughs> wants him to jump out of the birthday cake. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's it's been a while. They used to do that all the time in season one. He'd have some like thing going on in the background, and I, and I know they've done other ones too, but that was something that um, they haven't done as much recently. It almost feels like. They're trying to be purposely grounded with this one. And I wonder when this one was actually slated for production. Was it a very conscious choice to put this one after Lee Harvey Oswald just to lighten things up a little bit? Because I know the show can do that. Remember the yo-yo that was the end of season three? It was just like totally all over the place. And it didn't seem like it had any rhyme or reason. It just came across as weird when you're binge watching. But this one seemed very deliberately to be a comedy departure 
And do you guys have any insight as to the behind the scenes goings on when it comes to this one? I mean, I know someone mentioned, I think it was Tommy Thompson mentioned in one of the interviews that we did with him that there was an episode he wanted to write darker, but the the network or someone asked them to do a comedy. So um, I'm sure that that was a thought. They're like, after Lee Harvey Oswald, we need to do a comedy one. And I think that's pretty common with a lot of shows. Like after you get a really heavy episode to lighten it up, you don't want to just like constantly throw that on people, especially when it's um, shows that are more episodic that you can shuffle around a little bit more. So I, I think you're right thinking that. I don't have like any evidence anywhere of what specifically they were told about this one, but um, I'm sure that that was the thought. And this this was one of the earliest produced episodes of this season. And they, they produced completely out of order, but they, this was one of the earliest ones. And this, um, just going back to the point Alison raised earlier about this spec run on the script, which was June 26th, the Lee Harvey Oswald revision that Alison and I have is from July 92. So actually after this. So that, that must have been something like over the summer break or something they were fiddling around with? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's so weird. I wish I knew what that that meant. But th- this is, looking at the first half dozen produced episodes from this season, that date is the earliest one. E- even though we know, obviously, by the time they finished filming season four, they knew they were going to open with Lee Harvey Oswald. This episode was already being written before anything else this season. So many mysteries around this. Yes. I wanted to talk about some things lighting-wise in this episode. So, uh, first of all, I think that there were some interesting shots. I don't remember seeing ones quite like that before um, in this show. When they have Al and Sam walking around in the jungle or shrubbery or whatever in the dark... (laughs) I thought that that was different looking for this show. I can't remember episodes that look quite like that. I don't know what it was. Maybe it's because I think it was just like a stage backdrop somewhere. But (laughs) it felt like if you smash that next to something from the earlier seasons, there's just a distinct difference in what the show looks and feels like at this point. Cheaper? Cheaper? (laughs) Well, there's that too. Yeah, they, um, oh my god. So in some of the negatives that I bought, the ones that weren't the the ending, um, just other negatives, uh, they showed the production slate, you know, when you see that with the clapboard, like, scene whatever. They had some of those in uh, the shots, and um, it said Quantum Light on it. And it said something about, like, half the budget or something like that, so I think they were all very aware that the budget was not what it was before. Oh, that's my Yeah. Now, was that due specifically to them blowing a lot of budget on Lee Harvey Oswald, do you think? But I know like shows after about their fourth season around there, they start getting less production money coming to them, I guess, because they're they're past that initial high. Yeah. You know, unless it's a Seinfeld or something. But I'm also thinking that Lee Harvey Oswald had to eat up a substantial amount of their budget for season five right out of the gate. I imagine it did. I know uh, musically, uh, Velton Ray Bunch mentioned that like for much of the season, he didn't have much to work with. But for Lee Harvey Oswald, he had like a full orchestra. He had like so much that he could use in that. So I do imagine a lot of budget went to that. And I think it was also because it was their fifth season and and uh, the network cut their budget for whatever reason. So I think it's a combination of both. 
Yeah, it reminds me of when Chris Rupenthal was on the show talking about Southern Comforts when he was directing that. And I don't know if Tommy told him or if or if Paul Brown told him to just take it in and appreciate it. Look mm-hmm. at this set. Look at what mm-hmm. we have. Look at everything they're pumping into this because it's not going to last. They'll eventually cut back on all this kind of stuff. And when you have a very so deliberate, they did. yeah, when you have a very deliberate bottle episode like this, it, it's just all the more when you juxtapose it against the spectacle that was Lee Harvey Oswald. It's just like, ooh, they did this one on the fly, huh? Yeah, well, yeah, and I'm sure the fact that it's a bottle episode right after that is uh, not a coincidence. Um, Maybe that was, like, they had some spec scripts or spec ideas that they bought, and they were like, here is a good bottle idea that we can use um, to do very cheaply after Lee Harvey Oswald. Right, all we need is the tank, a raft, and a wedding dress. It does make you wonder why, if there was a need for a bottle episode, why at no point in this season did they try doing an episode with just Sam and Al? And it's not something I'd considered until watching this and thinking about the fact that the the cast was so small, thinking they had two fine actors there. It really is a surprise they didn't try for 45 minutes of just the two of them. Because I think they could have done something quite special. That would have been great. Yeah, I'd never even considered that. Was it the desert island setting that prompted you to think that? Because the second you said that, I'd never considered that idea before, but then I thought of something like Castaway. Yeah, no, it was just when I was thinking uh, about the small cast, not specifically the desert island setting. I think there's a few different ways you could play it. But yeah, obviously, this is an episode that's all about Brooke Shields' character and and the reactions to her and, and the guys working around her. And it just got me thinking, this was... As we've said a few times now, obviously an attempt to create a kind of bottle show. Um, But one of the standards of bottle shows is quite often there is no guest cast. And that might have been quite an extreme idea for something like Quantum Leap, but it could have worked. One of the uh, comics, uh, Mm. I think this was my favorite one, uh, was like that. It was called Waiting, I believe. Yeah. And it was all about Sam leaps into this uh, gas station in the middle of the desert. And he's just waiting around. So him and Al just talk about stuff. And it was just work with these characters, have them have an interesting conversation. And like at the very end, there's like something about Marilyn Monroe. But otherwise, the entirety is just that. And um, I never thought about them doing it as an actual episode. Now that you bring it up, I think that would have been really interesting. Well, here's my dirty secret. I have most of the comics, but I haven't read any. I think I read the first one. And that was it. And... I deliberately stopped because I wanted to read them fresh for the podcast once we took over the podcast. So I'm looking forward to uh, going through all that stuff with you guys. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if the comic books are any good, but at least there'll be something more to talk about and they can be different. And we know that Allison likes at least one of them. Oh, man. (laughs) Well, they went out on a great note. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I think that's that's a little bit more of an indication of what you think of the other ones. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get there in a year or so. <laughs> they almost did a sliders crossover. That was pretty interesting. I wish they'd great. done that. I know that we have an interview somewhere on the feed with the creator of the comics. Yes. Um, Something Campetti, right? Yeah. Yeah, he contacted me after the thing about the negatives came out, which is pretty oh, cool. cool. Oh, and he was just saying, like, hey, I thought this was really cool, and I'm the guy who did the comics, and I th- I, he was just saying, like, he thought it was really neat, so that was cool of him. Well, that's oh, cool. So maybe we get him again when we start talking about the comics. We can do, like, uh, have him as a guest host. That'll be 
something to look forward to. Because they were thinking about doing so many interesting things, and I know that he always wanted to do basically like a season six. They had so many great ideas, and it just ended prematurely because of uh, the the company folding. I know I'm making fun of some aspects of the comics, but there were a lot of like great ones and really cool ideas, and uh, I wish they were able to uh, to follow through with the ones that they wanted to do. Right? Do do either of you have a full run of the comics? Because, like I said, I have I have a handful, but I'm still missing a handful. Yeah, I have I have all of them. Of course you do. You're super fan, Allison. You have two handlings <laughs> too. <laughs> Oh, should we, should we let the people know that we're now a two-hand well, – actually, I'm sorry, a three-handling family here on the Quantum Leap podcast because Matt <laughs> finally arrived. Matt, can, oh can, we, can we get some handling action? Oh, he was ready. He was ready for that. <laughs> it's my desktop toy at the moment. It sits there while I'm at work, keeping me happy. It hasn't left his hand since he got it in the mail. No. <laughs> Man, it's a beautiful thing to behold. I highly recommend it. Thanks, Morgan. Yeah. Um, there was one more thing about lighting I just wanted oh, to bring right. up. Oh, that's right, lighting. That, uh, yeah, the, that uh, Chris had brought up before. But the uh, the HD version of this doesn't do some post-color correction that they should have uh, during... Uh, there's a <laughs> scene that's supposed to be at night. Yeah. Um, but it's clearly the day. Uh, so that kind of takes me out of the scene a little bit. And you know what? The thing is, I had only read that that scene existed. So when I saw it, finally, um, when I was – because I was looking for it now, it didn't really strike me as that odd. Maybe it was dusk. Like maybe the sun was still setting. I know that they were around a fire and being around a fire denotes it's night. But did they say specifically that it was night in that scene? I don't think they did. Doesn't doesn't Sam walk away at the end of that scene and it's clearly like nighttime? And maybe the sun set. Just as he was yeah, walking. Well, <laughs> I don't know. No, you can see it like most of it's covered by like shrubbery and right, stuff. But you so do it's get, not like yeah, a patch of sky. They're not just sitting out there in the sun, but yeah. you can see out there that it's clearly like the middle of the day and not when you would be having a campfire. It's supposed to be later at night than it is. And you know that the intention was supposed to be later because in the SD versions, they did have that color correction. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, the fact that they didn't put that on there, you know, it doesn't like hugely mar the episode, but it is an error that's noticeable. I don't even know that I would have noticed it had I not read about it. I don't know where I read it or how I read it. I probably read it on the Facebook page somewhere. But um, someone had mentioned it, so I thought I'd mention it to you guys. But again, I hadn't seen it. It was just something that I read and then I noticed it for the first time when I watched this for this show. And it didn't really bother me all that much. I said, oh, that's what they were making a big deal. Fanshore are nitpicky, aren't they? (laughs) What are you talking about? You are so nitpicky. (laughs) Not me. What are you talking about? Uh, I let everything roll right off my back, Allison. Stop it. Don't embarrass yourself. (laughs) You're you're the Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) Um, There's there's like some some really uh charming and touching moments in this episode i i know i'm nagging on a lot of stuff there's some stuff i really do enjoy about this episode um i love when sam is telling that story about his dad teaching him the names of the constellations Mm. my dad taught me the names of all the constellations he said if i knew the names of the stars above our home then i could never be alone because i could always look up and know that he and mom were looking at the same stars 
I thought that was really great. And also, like, I don't know. I never really... I don't look at, like, Dad Beckett and then think, like, he's someone who knows the names of constellations. (laughs) But it was a really nice story. And, like, the fact that Sam could hold on to that he said like you know if, if you look up and you're you're looking at the same stars as us and that even if you're far away that connects you to your your family and especially because sam is traveling through time you know like at any point he could be looking up at the same stars right. as his family and then somewhere out there starts playing in the background yeah yeah <laughs> and then one of the stars goes like i love you donna <laughs> stop ruining that beautiful moment <laughs> it was, it was stupid <laughs> it's lovely I cried <laughs> what so, something struck me in this episode and I, I stop me if we talked about this before because there's only a couple of times in the show that this happens but Sam gets some some decent stubble this time around right which, which is yeah. Quite rare in Quantum Leap. It's not it's not the first time it's happened, which is why I wonder if I've already raised this before, but if Sam gets stubble on his leaps, what happens when he leaps into a woman and stays there more than a couple of days? He's gotta use a leg razor. Does is <laughs> Does that work? Though it looks like he's got some pretty thick stubble going on. Would a leg razor work on that? I've never tried. I think um, I read something once where someone used, like, disposable leg razors to, like, shave their face. So I think you you can do it. I don't, I mean, I've never shaved my face, so I don't know no, how, well. how nice that feels. But you could. I guess, you know, you just use what resources you have. It's just one of those things that struck me while watching this. But yeah, it would, it would be quite odd to see, like, you know, like, he yeah. has to hide that. Yeah. Shaving his face. And when he was a monkey, he didn't get stubble either. You're not gonna, the monkey's not going to be shaving its face. <gasps> but, so. I mean, but people see... see whoa, 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 whoa. You, it's not like they're seeing Sam. If he's a woman, they see the aura of the woman. Or he could have a full yeah, beard. But yeah, but him. we see Yeah, exactly. So he must be shaving when he's when he's leapt into Gloria for several days. Uh-uh-uh. But, but maybe, maybe... They have a shaving regimen, a grooming regimen back at the project because if you notice, he has uber haircut in this episode. So obviously someone back at the project is cutting his hair. Yeah, but that's going with your dumb wrong theory that it's not his body and it is. So (laughs) I'm just saying that if we're seeing his aura, I got to think that- We're not seeing his aura, we're seeing his body. (laughs) Next episode, it's very evident that it's his body. You can't Uh, ride around that. that. But why do they not shave him during this episode then, Chris? Why not? Why do they not shave yeah, him? Yeah, explain that away. <laughs> because Al is too busy jumping at a birthday cake, so okay? There's Tina's party, it's Bedlam back at the project. That's right, it's usually Al's job to do the shaving. Right. With a capital T, capital S. <laughs> the, the great Just shaving. imagining Al shaving Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't see. These are the things that you got to go into in the novels. The owl shaving Sam scenes. Stop moving, Sam! <laughs> All right, this just turned into slash fiction. But um, what I'm thinking is that there's got to be, there's got to be. Just let me finish this thought. There's got to be some kind of caretaker at the project that is taking care of Sam's body when it's in do you think no did, Mel talks about talking to the people all the time no one's taking care of his body no 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 
it can take up to a week between leaps back at the project. They established that in the first episode. So is the waiting room just empty or are they just seeing like a shell of salmon there? Uh, well, I barring a, a little line in the final episode, which we'll get to later, of course it's empty. <laughs> <laughs> no one's on your side on this one, Chris. You're wrong. I don't think the waiting room's empty. We we know in Mirror Image there's a contradiction, but Mirror Image is full of contradictions. We'll get there. I think there's someone in that waiting room when Sam isn't occupying that space, just taking care of the shell of his body, shaving him, brushing his teeth, wiping his butt, and just keeping him <laughs> keeping him somehow groomed and presentable. That's my headcanon. This is a horrifying reality, though. <laughs> I know they. Um, I think in the comics they do go with that because it wasn't clear. Yeah. I think that's something that they have in there, that he's, it's just a body in there. Yeah, I got to think. That, I could be wrong. You know, there's, there's just some kind of weird simulacrum, some kind of like a empty husk. And Prelude definitely <laughs> states that when he leaps out. There, there is an empty husk left behind. And, uh, and, and <laughs> then they have to jump through hoops a little bit to explain why Ziggy says he stepped into the quantum leap accelerator and vanished. Or the narrator, not, not the Sony Ziggy. Yeah, explain that. Well, then Ziggy ha in Prelude, Ziggy has the line saying, "Oh, everything that Sam was has vanished." It's something along the lines of that. It's like, yeah, I know. What, whatever. <laughs> you can't go with Prelude. <laughs> I mean, it's just an interpretation. His living spirit, his Catra. <laughs> Prelude is wrong on many things that we know are not like why. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, as a novel, it's fine, but as a continuation of Quantum Leap, like I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> Why Why did she do this? Ashley, why? I'm quoting Prelude to confirm Chris's point, which which does the exact opposite. When, <laughs> when you have to use Prelude as evidence, there's a problem. Anyway, point is, Sam, Sam gets stubble in this episode. It's a rarity. I can think of this and Last Dance before an execution. Yeah, I think like um, at the end of A Hunting We Will Go, he also mm. had some stubble. Yes, but yes, yeah, yes, yes, very yes. rarely does he... It's usually because he's very haggard and having a bad time. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> it's because of plot at the time. It's oh, he's on a desert island. It would look good for him to look haggard. Yeah, you know what? He looks good with stubble. I'm just gonna say. Yeah, and it's not bad TV stubble either. Sometimes you get some really crap stubble because <laughs> yeah. they gotta like stipple it on with makeup. Uh, sometimes they'll do like shavings of like real hair and kind of paste it to their face, depending on uh, what the production is. This one I think is just stippled on, but it looks pretty good. Sometimes it looks like evil Superman in Superman 3. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the ultimate in awful stubble. I'm still confused about this whole shaving question because if he's a woman... <laughs> If he's if he's leapt into a woman, even though it's his body and they only see his aura, you're saying that he still has to shave somehow. Yeah, that's what we were talking about. That he's got to use a leg razor. Yeah, how's he going to shave when he looks in the mirror and sees the leapy? That's the other question. He's got to go with feel, right? You just feel the face and then you... Uh, doesn't he feel the aura around him? He feels his own face? Well, does he ever feel the aura, though? I don't know. I don't think he feels the aura. I think he feels his own body and then people see what they see. Yeah. Because that would also make peeing very difficult. Yeah, when he leaps into Billie Jean, it's not like he felt that he had, like, a pregnant bump. It's just normal to him until things started getting weird. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> if he can't feel the boobs, how does he put on the bra? Mm. We're going quantum deep here. Just, well, you can put on a bra without boobs. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> just, 
what if he put it on all wrong and he doesn't know because he's like just on his his man chest and then like and then he looks in the mirror and it's all like uh, over the breasts and he's like what I don't. yeah they're all like squished out and, and then al's like you did it wrong sam <laughs> I mean, we gotta go shave you now. This is now we've we've discovered yet a new quantum mystery: the great boob conundrum. How does he? <laughs> anyway, actually, in another mother, he did prove in another mother that he doesn't wear a bra sometimes because that was one of the weirdest sometimes. scenes ever. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. that's in true. In the back of the van, if you recall that. It's I, he's. I think it's just how well endowed the lady is. He's in, you know, because when he got the smaller chest, like it's not that weird to go around without a bra. But if you if you got you know the bigger chest, then like that's just uncomfortable, and people like they'll notice. They'll be like, <laughs> "What up with that?" <laughs> you got like back problems. <laughs> So, Chris, you had something about the episode to say, yeah? Well, you're the one who brought up stubble. Um, I know, and and now I'm wishing I hadn't. <laughs> Cross your heart, lifts and separates for a better figure. I wanted to talk about, I love that the reason that Sam leaps into this whole thing is because he sucks as a sailor. <laughs> he just sucks, and that's why they, usually it's because he's got some skill the other person doesn't have. You know, he's this jack-of-all-trades and he can do anything. And here it's just like... No, it's because you suck. <laughs> this yeah. guy was too good at navigating, so that's why you're here. Yeah, this is one of those rare occasions where, actually, the original history was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they make things better at the end, but... This is a leap for love. A leap for love. If he hadn't leapt in at all, everything would have been alright. Yeah, they just would have been a little bit sadder. She, You know, she's got her sad uh, life with her uh, fiancé, David, or uh, what's-his-face, as yeah. Sam calls him. <laughs> <laughs> He's very respected in the community. But do you love him? <laughs> Daddy loves him. Um, this, this all, but this, okay, maybe I am that picky Allison, but this episode raises a good question because we saw the chemistry between Sam and Vanessa. Yeah. But what if Nikos, when Nikos comes back, it's just like, how are we on this island and what what did you do to me? We don't know if he wants to commit. Exactly. He screwed this guy. <laughs> we don't know if he wants to commit to nine years on an island with this lady. Like, they, they do mention, like, they mention that, like, they've had eyes for each other. So clearly there's something going on and that's the reason he's there because there's this relationship. But the whole build up to the actual relationship part is just with Sam. And then that goes so much farther to commit to being on this deserted island it's like okay we don't know if this is what this guy wants and then what happens when he leaps back in does he remember any of this or like know what like he's like what the hell and then does she think he just had like hit his head like it's just all sorts of confusing aftermath here that i think is not great yeah like she could say name those constellations for me and he'd be like what are you talking about <laughs> yeah what about your dad what about the the, uh, the greek guides or whatever trojan guides <laughs> my, my dad was a bastard and i stabbed him Wait a minute. Alison, <laughs> <laughs> oh. did you pick up on the deleted scene in the script? Oh, no. I, it's been a while since I read it. What was it? So, you guys will remember in, in the saga cell for season five, there's a quite an iconic sequence of Sam and Al walking down the beach together. Right, that's from this episode. But it's not in this episode. It's a deleted scene. Oh. And during that, they're talking about Nikos back in the waiting room being absolutely obsessed with this woman. It explains exactly what you guys have just been talking about, that actually, yeah, everything's going to be fine afterwards because Nikos is head over heels in love with this woman. They, well, they do talk about it in, at night when they're walking around as well. 
in the actual episode. So it's I, like, I mean, I get that that helps bolster it up. And I think that would have helped a lot that they establish this more that like, this is a mutual feeling between them. Mm. But in the actual episode, I don't think they have the line where Al says that uh, Nikos was seriously considering kidnapping her. Oh, ew. oh my god! All right, that's a little creepy. Yeah, yeah. I don't, he was seriously considering kidnapping her before she could walk down the aisle, but in a romantic way. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's it's. I'm, I'm kind of. If that scene had been in there, it would have at least, like, like you say, bolstered the whole relationship. But at the same time, I'm glad it was removed because it's very <laughs> creepy. I think swept away as a movie is also very creepy and problematic too so they're kind of ba- this is actually less creepy and problematic than that because i think in swept away those are the kinds of characters that would kidnap each other and they would think mm. it was romantic <laughs> like <laughs> yeah yeah cuz there's bits in that movie uh where and this is all from like synopses and clips i've never seen the whole thing but um it's like just torturing each other and then acting really like sexist and then him making her do a bunch of uh, stuff for him and like haha who's on top now and then all this stuff where it's like this is not cute romantic stuff this is actually very creepy and bad <laughs> it's lord of the flies <laughs> yeah nikos claims when it comes this is al uh, when it comes to the ladies there isn't anything he can't do a boy after my own heart Oh, mm. oh, that could be bad too. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Al, what are you talking about? I gotta go and check if he's talking to Tina. He doesn't say that, but but he really should be. Oh my god. Because <laughs> apparently, yeah, Nikos is, is a bit of a Lothario. He left a mint on her pillow every night, carried her five suitcases. That is the evidence that they, they present in the uh, final episode yes. that, uh, that he was obsessed with her. And she, uh, she snuck down to see him pretending that she needed to smoke. And I guess she did, which is why the ship blew up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but isn't like leaving mints on her pillow and carrying her suitcases this guy's job? So yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's like saying that the that the maid at hotel I stay at is in love with me because she gave me turn down service. <laughs> She's not. Yeah, he had great customer service. Damn it! Oh, I've left some very embarrassing notes behind in hotel rooms now that I'm regretting. <laughs> oh, shit! My whole life is a lie. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, that's flimsy, and I think maybe Allison, maybe they took that scene out. Because they don't want you to look too closely at that aspect of it. Maybe not just for this episode, but for for the entire show. I don't know about the kidnapping aspect, but I think it really would have helped if they established more that this was a a feeling before this leap in where it is just Sam. Yeah. Because it's not like they're going into like, oh, there's residuals and he feels like he feels or something, um, which might have been something they could have used. Like, okay, so clearly this guy does have feelings for her and all this, but... uh, yeah, we just see her falling in love with Sam, so... Right. Mm. But for all that, I mean, it was a wonderfully sweet episode. I love when they they have the mud fight, yeah. and then they're just, like, laughing covered in mud together. That was really charming. Yeah. You know, you guys should put on bikinis and charge admission. <laughs> Wasn't that... They were in pee water, weren't they? Yeah, they were in pee water. <laughs> oh. How romantic. Covered in mud. That reminds me of my wedding night. No, um. <laughs> I wanted to bring up, this is kind of evident because this is a bottle episode, so we only have three characters to focus on. I think Al was really kind of a weak point of it. I don't know if he he had some good stuff, but he wasn't in it very much. And I think that adding that subplot was to give him a little bit more to do. 
Um, and I, some of the line reads, I didn't quite understand. Like, they just seemed off to me. Like, um, there's a line uh, that was, it reads really clever, but the delivery was weird to me. So they're looking through the hope chest. And then Al says, uh, looks like that's a no hope chest. That sounds more like a no hope chest. Or something like that. He puts this weird emphasis on it when it's like, oh, shouldn't you, it'd be like, oh, that's a no hope chest yeah. or something like that. I don't know. It just, it read a little off to me and I'm not sure why that was. I mean, maybe he just makes choices because that's what you expect. I think Shatner does that deliberately too, probably more so. But I think part of the skill or maybe part of just not being bored with a role is finding ways to put your own spin on it. So maybe he very well gave them like two or three takes with that. That's a no hope chest, book. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe they just chose a take like that. It kind of read a little bit um, checked out. And I don't want to like <laughs> nag on Dean Stockwell about that because like he's he's great. And I do think he had some great scenes. I just think occasionally, I don't know, it just didn't really seem there. He does seem a bit off this episode. Dean's a fantastic actor, and um, and he is good in a lot of this episode, but the, yeah, there's elements where he does seem a little bit off his game, which is very unusual. Maybe it was like they were filming this before, well, I, I, the script was commissioned before they, like, they might not have filmed it the first thing, but because it was early, like, they were just getting back and getting into the groove, I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess so. I'm just wondering if it's because it was such a, a non-part for him in this episode. I mean, but that's such a like that's such a failing, and that's something I would have done something with in the script because like that's when you use what characters that you have, and to have one character not be that involved, it just stands out more to me because it's not like there's a lot going on, like that it's so busy that you couldn't use uh, Al more. Yeah, um, I liked that he had the subplot with Tina, but it just it it felt sort of. Like, it needed another pass or something to bolster up his role. Well, it's funny because you had mentioned that he's wearing the robe from season one, mm -hmm. from the pilot episode in this. And the way they used Al in this is very reminiscent of season two. It seems like something that they used to do a lot back when the show was starting. Especially because they, I think they, they were trying to think what Al should do so they were just coming up with a lot of like here's what's going on and until they like the character was really built up and then they were finding like more things that they could do other than like oh, i have a loud neighbor what am i gonna do <laughs> right, yeah um but i mean i like when he mentions stuff from the project i wish that they had kept doing it more because it helps build that he has a world outside of sam What's odd about season five is we do get to see a lot more of the project, but we never get to see more of the people at the project. Yes. Like we don't get any of the real interpersonal relationships. That ship sailed with the leap back and we never saw it again, you know, except for the occasional gushy cameo. Yeah, he's the only one, isn't it? You never see anyone else again. It's a missed opportunity. You never see Donna again. You never see Beaks again. You never see Keytar Man again. Yeah, Keytar Man. <laughs> there was so much lore to get from Keytar Man. <laughs> It would have been lovely as well to have Beaks come back. Maybe a few times they could have had a running joke where 
Al asks her a question, she opens her mouth to answer, and then we cut away. <laughs> it would have been like Morn on DS9. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> Poor Beaks. Poor Silent Beaks. Yeah, we do get to see more, like, Navy personnel. Yes. Or, like, guards and stuff. I think they're all Navy people that we that we see at the project, but never, like, any of the main characters or anything outside of Gushy. No. Oh, well. Which is just a shame, especially because Beaks was so prominent before, like, just mentioning her. You know, they'd be like, this is what Beaks is doing, and this is what's going on. And then we see her, and then she's just not utilized. And she's so important at the project, because psychologically, this is just a lot for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So anytime someone leaps in, they would have to have her at the ready, um, because you never know how people are going to react. And, like, this is a, quite a shock to a lot of people. And, uh, yeah, just a... Uh, Important thing. And the novels get that. Which is why Beaks is in charge of Sam's grooming squad. There. I figured it out. <laughs> oh, Beaks is the one that does the shaving. No, she directs the people that do the shaving. Where are those ensigns? Those ensigns gotta, they gotta earn their stripes somehow, right? Oh, she's like, hey, do the shaving, and then they go do it. So you, shave them. <laughs> you, wipe them. <laughs> <laughs> that's what she's relegated to? Like, that's she's demoted to shaving duty? She got that psychology degree and this is what she... <laughs> no, she delegates the shaving duty. She's not relegated to Why, it. though? Surely there's other people to do this. Because she's in charge of the medical staff. I think that would fall under medicine. Is she also in charge of the medical staff? Like, I know, like, she's like, uh, you know brain doctor but like what about like if someone's having they have doctors for being a beaks brain doctor she is a brain doctor like mental health and physical health are different things which are both very important and they mention several times that they have doctors at the project so they clearly have like a medical staff that we never see i don't think i've ever heard them mention sick bay at the project they have a medical staff they talk about it during the episode with billy jean uh when she goes into labor and uh, I believe that they talk about it during Trilogy when uh, Sam has heart problems. Yeah. Yeah. So they do mention that they have a medical staff, and that would make sense because uh, things can and do go wrong. Yeah. Sure, it makes sense. I mean, we can we can make the project as big as we want in our heads. It's just, again, a missed opportunity, I think, that we never got to see a little bit more of it. I wonder if in season six they would have ventured more onto that side of things. I want to see, like, their dining room or their cafeteria, because, like, I remember, like, Al mentioning something about taco chips and cheese, and mm. <laughs> just hanging out, eating tacos, and then enjoying, you know, an Elvis performance, and then <laughs> shaving Sam, and then... <laughs> <laughs> it's great that we've got so much to say about Leaping of the Shrew, isn't it? Uh, we're just fanning out. There was a bad dub in this episode. <laughs> There's a bad dub in every episode. Yeah. There's always bad dubs. There was um. So when he's talking to uh, Vanessa at the end, and they're they're getting together officially, he says, "You're saving yourself and your husband, Nikos." But clearly, he's saying David, which is the name of her actual fiance. So that was a little bit awkward to me. But he meant Nikos, right? He was implying to her that this is where you belong. Yeah, I think he was um he was being like sarcastic or joking like, "Oh right, you're saving yourself for your husband David." And then like, but really he's saying like, "You're saving yourself for me." Um but I think Donald Belisario did one of his last minute edits where he was just like, "No, no, it's not clear what he's talking about. Just change it to Nikos." And they did. But it's a close-up of his mouth <laughs> and you can see what he's saying. <laughs> 
And also, it just because it's so obvious he's really saying David, it just makes it seem like she's just laughing at that prospect. And like, I don't know. It's very strange. Well, at least he's moving his mouth. I've seen shows where they dub in a line and the actor's not even moving their lips. Their mouth is just closed. So I'm I sure mean, they've I mean, done that on Quantum Leap at some <laughs> yeah, point. But. I, think, I think it was in Lee Harvey Oswald, actually. Um, I think it was the scene in the Marine camp when he was stripping the rifle. Mm. Yeah, I think they dubbed in some dialogue where Sam says something, but clearly he's not moving his mouth. Yeah, sometimes things just get added like they're like, oh, we need to add like one more word or one more line or this is not clear or whatever. And and that happens a lot. It just, uh, it's how you disguise things. And I think Quantum Leap more than a lot of shows I've seen or doesn't care as much about like <laughs> if it's obvious they're saying something else. You know, it's funny because I wanted to ask you guys something because you're a lot more in tune with the technical aspects of the show. And I'm sorry, Matt, we're going to drift away from Leaping the Shrew yet again. <laughs> but this is something that I think one or both of you might have caught into. In editing the Lee Harvey Oswald show for the last episode, I was having a hell of a time with the show audio. The audio on that episode was so uneven and it was, oh. there was a lot of ambient noise. It was, it was unlike any audio that I've ever edited for Quantum Leap. It usually has a very consistent audio sound, like quality. And Lee Harvey Oswald was just all over the place. And I'm wondering if you guys had noticed that. Uh, maybe it's just me because I have this stuff in my ears all the time and I'm really working with it. But I'd be curious to see if they changed, because you guys said this series has sort of a new look for season five. I wonder if they changed the behind the scenes and changed sort of the sound design as well. I didn't notice. I've got a terrible ear for that sort of thing. So I, I know the kind of thing you mean, but when people say that, I'm like, yeah, I, I can't tell the difference. Yeah, for that particular episode, I didn't notice, but I think that you definitely notice sound design more when you're doing editing than when you're watching something, unless it's really obviously bad. Like a lot of horror movies right now are notorious for like very quiet dialogue, very loud jump scare or music. And it, it bugs the hell out of me when there's like bad sound mixing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's when you're like even things out. And uh, sometimes it can be used to good effect when you have like something very quiet, something very loud, whatever, but you don't want an entire project like that. And um, it, it is more obvious when you're editing it because if it's just audio, yeah. Like, you don't want to blow out the listener's ears when the music suddenly gets very loud. You want the dialogue to be audible, so you have to do more mixing than they do in the actual episode. Yeah, which, exactly. Uh, and which I do quite frequently with videos I'm editing, too. I'm sure it's got to be a nightmare for movie nights because of just the varying qualities of the stuff that you watch. Oh, some of them have garbage audio, and you have to fix it. You have to fix their movie <laughs> to be, like, good for people to watch on YouTube because they don't want to, like, strain to, to figure out what they're they're listening to or have their headphones blown out. And But, I mean, I don't think it was that off in uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, but I believe that when you're editing, it's more noticeable. This show does have the same sound designer um, – sorry, the same sound mixer from Southern Comforts right the way through to Mirror Image. Wow. It's the same guy. Is sound design the same? Would they do sound mixing? I don't know exactly who does what job. Would sound design also be mixing? There isn't somebody separately credited for sound design, so I would assume that would sit somewhere between the mixer and the sound editor, who is also someone consistent throughout a lot of the show's history. So Yeah, because is sound design... 
Is that like a lot of foley work and stuff like that? Or what specifically does a sound designer do? I think sound design is to give the ambiance. So it could be all the foley work. And then the mixer is the one who has it in the bay and has to sort of ride the levels so that when you have the final mix. Yeah, sound mixing is definitely the levels. Yeah. But I don't know if that falls to a sound designer or if that's a separate. I got to imagine they work hand in hand if it is separate because one's going to be depending on the work of the other. But that'd be an interesting thing. Let's see if we can get some more of the production staff. Maybe we can get the sound designer or the sound mixer or and see how they break this stuff down. Because I have to say, I have never had to ride levels as as hard as I did in Lee Harvey Oswald. I had to boost up so much of the dialogue so that it was audible on on my earbuds. And, you know, it, it just, it was, it was kind of messy. So anyway, that's, that's kind of a, a, a rabbit hole that we can go down and maybe I'll keep a pin in it for myself, just seeing how this season plays out with the sound quality. And yeah, that'd be a good interview to get. I mean, it's possible that they were thinking about doing the sound mixing differently. I never really thought about it, but. I also, I was thinking because Lee Harvey Oswald was so cinematic. Yeah, Maybe yeah. they took a completely different approach to it and maybe it had a lot more ambient sound just to give it a more cinematic feel as opposed to it, like a flat TV feel. It did have at times uh, that very loud, bombastic part of the scoring too, which made it feel more cinematic. So that might also be uh, intentional for them to do the sound just a little bit different. I wouldn't be surprised. I think like often... um Sound work is something you you don't think about a lot during a production, which is good because you shouldn't be thinking about it. But it, it can be kind of um, a difficult job to do, like a lot of work for something that no one is is really thinking about, unless like you really bungle it, you know. Because like uh, obviously you're you're talking about it now uh, when you get into doing editing, like you notice like how much of a pain it is. Mm-hmm. To make sure that, like, the music's not drowning out this certain thing, that this sound effect is in sync with someone's footsteps, um, you know, that, like, this audio is audible or if it needs to be dubbed over because there's, like, wind or some sort of, like, uh, fault with, like, maybe the boom mic wasn't pointed quite directly at them. Like, there's just all sorts of very complicated sound things. And the funny thing is, I know, like like you said, Alice, and we're going off on yet another tangent, and I think it's because Leaping of the Shrew... Usually when an episode is really solid, there's not a lot to do but gush. And, you know, just sitting here and gushing for 45 minutes about what a good episode this was, even though you didn't like it as much as Matt and I did, I still don't think you have any serious problems beyond maybe the wrinkly screen of the sky, the wrinkly sheet. Yeah, I don't have any real serious problems. There's just like, like I said, there's just like some things I would have done to punch it up if I was working on this, you know, like I feel like... Alice part could have been bolstered a little bit more um, that there could be just a, like a little something added to the script, just like a little more going on. Cause it's very simple, but um, I like, uh, and maybe this is the final thought from me, unless you guys have anything else to add. I thought Brooke Shields was very charming and very good and very funny. And I'm glad that, uh, that Scott Bakula also got a chance to do more comedy stuff, especially after Lee Harvey Oswald, just to be able to, <laughs> to have a break and do something really fun. Um, I like them working with the, uh, the big tank of water and, um, get, they get to play a little bit. And, uh, and I thought that the outfits were very cute. How about you, Matt? 
yeah, I think it's it's already been said, really. It's, there's not much to say about this episode because it is a good, solid episode. It's fun when it has to be fun. It's moving in places. It's a sweet little episode. And um, yeah, it, it's one that's very easy to watch repeatedly. I'll agree with you there. I, when I think of this episode, like I said, it was adorable up top, but I also think it's goofy and funny and romantic. And I think it just fires well on everything that they were intending. And I didn't feel like there was much missing from it because I think it was what it wanted to be, which was just a light comedy. And the chemistry between Brooke and Scott was there in spades. And because you have that, you can forgive almost anything else. It just carries the episode, and I think this episode is a winner. I think it's probably one of the highlights of season five, believe it or not. So, all right, guys. Uh, Leaping of the Shrew, sound design, and Pain in the Buffalo. We never talked about Pain in the Buffalo. I thought that was one of the funniest lines I ever heard when I first saw yeah. it. <laughs> Pain in the Buffalo. It's such an intimate detail, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Allison, what was your camp name? <laughs> was my camp name? Uh, <laughs> she who annoys people on a podcast. <laughs> wow, you were ahead of your time back then. <laughs> What's a podcast? You'll find out in about thirty years. Yeah, you got. You guys got to do. What are your guide names? Now you guys got to do guide names. Brit boy. <laughs> And my guide name is He Who Never Shuts Up. But I'm going to shut up for the time being because we have to take a break. And on the other side, we will be talking to the one, the only, Jean-Pierre Dorliac. The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the Quantum Leap Podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. Hi, I'm Zoe Dean. I've got a couple of questions for you. Are you a fan of classic movies and old Hollywood? Are you a film history nut? Do you love podcasts? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast is the show for you. Not Just Yesterday is dedicated to Roddy's amazing life and career and gives interesting and fun behind-the-scenes information about the projects he worked on. The show covers everything from How Green Was My Valley to Planet of the Apes, and continues to be updated every few months with exciting new shows and awesome content. Interested? It's free to listen, and the show is available for download wherever fine podcast programming is given away. Just type Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast in the search bar, and dive into the wonderful legacy left behind by Roddy McDowell. This is a podcast you will want to share with everyone you know and love. So plug in your headphones or turn up your speakers. And remember to keep smiling. This is John Aquino, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Whoa, I'm seeing double here. Four owls wearing Quantum D. Hello, Leapers. Uh, I'm former child star Hayden McQueenie, and joining me we have... I'm Albie. Lovely to hear from you again, Albie. We love having you on the show. B-team, 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 go. 
I wanted to do a special quantum deep all about stuff that I had heard the A-team talking about in the podcast for A Leap for Lisa. Unfortunately, I cannot for the life of me remember what was said, but I do remember <laughs> that it did really make the cogs in my mind turn, and so I still wanted to talk about it. Specifically, I wanted to talk about Al. Al Calavici, not Al, the awesome podcaster. Oh, I, I like that guy. Well, he's one of our two favorite characters from Quantum Leap, isn't he? Uh, top three. <laughs> oh, who's uh, who's in the top two for you? Ah, uh, man, it's 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 it changes every episode. It really does. But uh, right now, it's <laughs> got to be uh, Carolyn Seymour. She's up there with the most appearances on Quantum Leap, too. Oh, really? Maybe that's why. It seems to be the ones that were involved in the Jimmy episodes or the Evil Leaper episodes or some combination of both, which end up being the ones who appear the most often. And those people are so cool and so communicate Yeah, they love talking to us. I know. It's awesome. I know. Uh, what's wrong with them? Why do they want to talk to us? Yes, Scott called me once. <laughs> Dean doesn't return my phone calls, but, you know, Carolyn Seymour, she'll chat with me all the time. Oh, yeah. She always sends me a birthday message, too, and she always says something like, oh, Lothos told me there's 100% <laughs> chance at your birthday today, or something like that. Jeez, it's yes, always nice yeah, to see. She's great. And she doesn't repeat her messages to the same person, so she's smart and keeps track. I don't know how she does it, but, uh, you know, yeah. so she's, she's in the top. Yeah, another one who always sends me a birthday message is uh, James Harper, who was Vinny the Viper. Me too. Yeah, I had lunch with him, actually. He was here for a holiday in Melbourne uh, with his wife because they were, well, a working holiday. His wife is also an actress, and oh. they were doing what's the word, master classes with uh, actors at university. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, and so uh, I just happened to see he was on Facebook and said, does anyone know anything to do in Melbourne? And I'm like, uh, well, I live in Melbourne. So <laughs> we, we went out for Palmer's, and yeah, you haven't lived until you've had a Palmer in Melbourne. Is that like a hot dog or a beer? No, it's a chicken Parmigiana. Ah, okay, okay. I've had those in the States here, but uh, we don't call them that. We went to my favorite restaurant, which is called Mrs. Palmer's, which is in Melbourne. Nice. And uh, yeah, it's great because they have a lot of specialty Palmer's and they have beers that they match to each one. Interesting. Well, I'll have to try it when I uh, come by. Yeah, get down here as soon as you can. Well, definitely as soon as you can because everyone's on lockdown. Melbourne's back on lockdown again, unfortunately, but uh, we need it. Look out for me in 12 years. Yeah, well, look, I agree with it, but I'm still going to whinge about it. <laughs> oh, I love lockdown. I mean, it's, it's really it's really nice. I don't. It's uh, pretty much the same as before, except uh, the anxiety level going out is uh, skyrocketed. But yeah, I had to laugh at the time because at the time it was getting close to our state elections and the leader of the evil party, it had come out that he'd had lunch with mobsters. So <laughs> at this time when I was having the lunch with uh, James Harper and put a photo up for everyone to see, I said, oh, I'm the leader of the Liberal Party and uh, <laughs> having lunch with the mobster. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a great guy too, uh, Vinny the Viper, man, James Harper. Yeah, he always sends me really nice messages every now and then. Yeah, he, he likes my stuff, comments, sends me messages. Great guy. Great. I love when people are just people and they don't have some kind of false air about them like that. Our listeners won't understand this, but Albie and I have this amazing experience when we watch Quantum Leap now because we can say, oh, I'm friends with that person. I'm friends with that person. I'm friends with that person. Yeah. yeah. My daughter says, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and you had lunch with James Harper. Yeah, they travel the world and his wife and him, they look so happy and they do all kinds of fun things. Life goals, you know. That's exactly it. Yeah, and uh, Jane Sibbett is always up for a chat, and yep. um, 
and Deborah Pratt will she's always keen to do anything to do with Quantum Leap. If yeah. we were to ask her to give us a sound bite of Ziggy, she'd do it. So you know what I think? I think great people make great television. That's exactly it. Yeah. I, I think exactly the same thing. And when we agree with what we watch, you know that we, we're going to get along pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, I believe we were talking a little bit about Al, though, weren't we? Yep. Al. That, that was it. Al. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Like I said, he's one of our two favorite characters in Quantum Leap, or at least in definitely in the top five. Top, top six. No, no, <laughs> no question. Yeah. But something that really annoys the watchers of Quantum Leap, and this actually is a funny story because I'm co-hosting a new podcast about Quantum Leap as well. All our listeners should check it out. Obviously, there's room for anyone who wants to talk about Quantum Leap. So if you want to do a podcast about it, just go and do it. But I'm co-hosting this with a couple of friends who are also friends of this podcast, um, Aaron Moss and his wife, Michelle. Very similar, in fact, to the original incarnation of the Quantum Leap podcast, like when you and Heather were doing it, uh, because Aaron has seen the whole series all the way through and Michelle hasn't. So we're getting, uh, you know, viewpoints from somebody who hasn't seen the show before. And I'm loving hearing all the theory she's coming up with. And she's getting so upset because Aaron and I can kind of say, oh, well, we know what's coming up. And she's like, no, I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on uh, working on that show. And congratulations to the Mosses or would the plural be Moss? I'm not sure. Might be Mossai. Mossai. Congratulations to them. Yeah, they got a great show. Little known fact, I was a technical uh, assistant for one show, one episode. But yeah, welcome to the Quantum Leap podcast family. Our sister podcast, we'll call it. Uh, yeah, they, they have a very good thing going on. I love their format. It seemed very reminiscent of our original format. And like you said, I hope it ends better for them than it did for us. Mm. Well, I also like some of the segments they put in it as well, because uh, at the end of each episode, what they do is they bring in a segment um, all about what's on Sam's playlist. And they talk about not the music that was in the episode, but the music of the time Ah. that Sam had leapt to. And they've got another segment, which is all about the history of what was going on at the time as well. So, yeah, lots of really interesting stuff going on in that podcast. So. Once I remember how to actually get there so that you can listen to it, we'll let all our listeners know, and uh, Aaron and Michelle will be very happy to have some more people uh, having a listen. Yeah, I'm I'm very glad they're doing that, yeah. The reason that I brought them up, though, was because uh, even just a few episodes in, we just recorded The Color of Truth, which is only six episodes in, and already Michelle is saying, I'm getting so annoyed at how Al seems to have done everything. And we're only six episodes in. So she's not a fan of Al. Oh, she's a fan of Al. She just doesn't like the fact that he's done everything. Oh, I got you. Oh, yeah, right. He's done everything. What? Everything. Literally everything. Is there anything he hasn't done? I don't know. Well, he's not a lawyer. We know that. Yeah, that's true. Otherwise, he wouldn't have needed five divorce attorneys. But (laughs) (laughs) It's gotten me wondering how on earth has Al managed to live such a full life? It's, it seems like he must have lived at least two lifetimes. Do you agree with that? At least. I can live with the fact that maybe Al just is very, very active and wants to do everything and just goes and jumps straight into it. What I don't like is when there are obvious contradictions. All right. And the biggest contradiction was in Diaper Monkey. Al <laughs> talks about when he was in the Apollo missions and specifically that he circled the moon 10 times on Christmas Eve and recited from the book of Genesis. 
Now, the Apollo missions took place between 1967 and 1972, and the events that he described were from Apollo 8, which was launched on December the 21st, 1968, which indeed did circle the moon 10 times, and the crew did read from Genesis on Christmas Eve. It seems like he knows an awful lot about this, but how could he possibly be doing that when at the same time he was in Vietnam as a POW locked in a tiger cage? Do you want my theory? Yes, I'd love to hear your theory, and then you can hear mine. <clears throat> all right, sounds good. My my headcanon, the thing that I made up to make it all all right that he's done so many different things, is he's in the unique position of being the observer at Project Quantum Leap, and you know he's he helps Sam and with all the information and things. And as history changes, except for I'm thinking the time that Roddy McDowell took over in his job. But other than that, he's aware of multiple timelines, like in the uh, Honeymoon Express episode, where he's the Mm -hmm. only one that noticed everything around him changes. So uh, I don't think his perception of multiple timelines is dependent on him being in the chamber or even at the project, because I don't think those hearings were held at the project. Am I correct? Uh, Well, we don't know. Okay. So there's something – so there's something – about him, whether it's like nanotechnology, a device he wears, or just the the you know hand wavy, uh, ununderstood, advanced science behind the time travel, that mm-hmm. he is aware of multiple timelines, and yet he still remains to be himself. So, was he a POW? Yes. Did he come home? Yes. D- did he? Did he? Uh, oh, spoilers all all across the board. By the way. Um, uh, I think it's pretty obvious he came home. <laughs> did, did he end up? Did he end up with Beth? Yes. Did he end up with Beth? No. Did Did he have kids? Yes. Did he not? No. Uh, was he even involved in Project Quantum Leap? Yes. No. But he's aware of all of it. So I think as Sam is leaping through time and changing different things, that changed Al's timeline just because you know butterfly effect and things and even if he didn't experience them he still has it like his current consciousness didn't experience them he has the memories of doing those things so i think that's why he's able to have multiple different experiences that overlap and contradict that's what i've in my head put together now, please okay. tell me I'm wrong and explain it to me. <laughs> I'd like to know. No, I don't think you're wrong per se. I think that elements of what you say definitely make sense and could be right. Uh, but for me, what gets to me is the fact that he has to be in two places at once. He can't be in two places at once. Or can he? This is the thing. All right. Now, anyone who hasn't seen a leap for Lisa wouldn't understand this but anyone who has seen a leap for lisa might might start thinking along my lines okay so remember in a leap for lisa sam leaps into a very young al um well i'll call him bingo for the time being because i need a way to distinguish him from older al all right bingo (laughs) so he's leapt into bingo but sam fails in his mission um which is to save lisa He stuffs up the timeline a bit. Anyone who's watched the episode knows this. Eventually, to fix everything, Bingo, who's in the waiting room, um, gets told that the older owl is him from the future. And then the older owl convinces Bingo to leap back into an even younger version of himself, like a week or so earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that version of owl I'll call Bango, just to try and keep (laughs) (laughs) 
Just to try and keep it lined up in our heads, all right? So the one that Sam leapt into is Bingo. Bingo leapt back further into a younger version of that one we call Bango, all right? Mm -hmm. So Bingo's in Bango, and uh, he fixes everything up, um, prevents Chip from accidentally killing Commander Riker's wife. What's her name? Marcy. I think you need to watch more Star Trek. Oh, wait, no, that's a different Riker. You're right, you're right. I was going to say that's Worf's wife. That he ends up. Yeah, no, that his name was Riker. I'm pretty yes. sure of it. How crazy is that? Yeah. Small world. <laughs> yeah, well, you were talking about a, a Riker before, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Bingo, bango, bongo. Yeah, bingo is in bango, and bingo prevents Chip from accidentally killing Marcy, and because of that, none of the other stuff that Sam was sent there to fix, like Lisa being in the accident because she was crying while driving, ended up coming to pass. All right, but you've got to remember at the same time... This kind of fucks up things for Bingo because we've always wondered what actually happened to Bingo after everything had been sorted out. Mm. Sam, when he realizes everything is right, leaps away, and that's fine. But that timeline that Sam was in would have to be erased because, you know, none of it would have happened now. So if Sam leaps out and that timeline's erased, what can Bingo leap back to? He can't, can he? Not really. You starting to see? Are you starting to see where I might be coming? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. If Bingo can't leap back to his original timeline. When he leaps and Bango comes back and lives his life, Bingo's got to go somewhere off and do something else. You starting to see what I'm thinking? There's two owls. Mm. There's Bango that, when he leaps back, uh, continues to live his life, and he's the one that ends up going to Vietnam and becoming a POW. But the bingo that can't leap back to his own timeline, he continues to leap around. And he's the one that can go and do all of these things that the older Al has the experiences of. Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah. So that explains, first of all, how he can be in two places at once. It explains how he's able to have done everything under the sun without even you know, seeming like he's got to take any time to travel because he can just leap there. Mm -hmm. And also, it explains why older Al was so keen to make sure Bingo actually made that initial leap, because it's older Al that's the one that experienced the leap in the first place. So So the the Al that we know is the one that leapt back and fixed everything and has lived his life. Is that Bingo or Bingo? Bingo. So So Bingo is the one that lived, like, Al's normal life, the one okay. that became the POW. Okay. But Bingo is the one that continued to leap, all right, and experienced everything like being an astronaut and going up on, a, on Apollo. Mm. And it's Bingo that grew into older Al and ended up joining Project Quantum Leap. You know, Michelle even was saying there's something about Al. I think Al is the key to everything that's going on here. Mm. And if you think about it like this, he would have to be. He has to join Project Quantum Leap because he has to make sure that the younger Bingo goes out and leaps so that he can grow into older Al who can help out Sam as the observer. And he knows this, but he's keeping it to himself the whole time, right? I would say so, yeah. Now, as you said, there's some sort of temporal science reason why Al remembers all the timelines, mm-hmm. because he's also remembering the lifetime that he spent as a POW. Right. But I suppose that that would have to be the case if he's keeping track of everything that's changing with the timelines anyway as the observer. So I think that Michelle actually is exactly right. It's all about Al. 
Al's the one who ultimately enables Quantum Leap to exist. We could also think that maybe a lot of people have wondered, we're getting into really heavy spoiler territory here, but people have wondered, well, if Sam in Mirror Image leaps to Beth and tells him that Al's still alive, then does that erase Al from the project? Or um, would Sam and Al have ever originally met? And it wouldn't because the POW Al, in other words, Bango, Mm -hmm. continues to live his life with Beth. But Bingo, who's the Al that grows up to become the observer at the project, is still there and still helping Sam out. Uh, This brings up a question for me that I have for you. Okay. Um, Is it ever established in Quantum Leap? Because I know there's a few theories about uh, time travel. One is that there's one timeline, one uh, that changes when you change something in the past and that changes the future of the same timeline the other theory or one of the other theories is that as you're changing in your perce- your perception of the timeline you're actually just jumping to different timelines do we know uh, whether quantum leap has picked one or the other quantum leap switches around between them all mm. um, we're expected to believe say in future boy that Everything was destined to happen anyway, like how um, the bootstrap paradox exists where um, Sam teaches Mo Stein the string theory and then Mo Stein teaches a younger Sam the string theory who then goes and leaps and teaches Mo Stein. So so we're expected to believe in that episode that, uh, you know, this this loop always existed. Right, right. Everything that did happen always happened kind of thing. Yeah, so there's that theory. I don't agree with it because, as we know, in the original timeline, Mo Stein died and can't teach Sam the string theory when he's dead. But anyway, (laughs) but I think the intention, well, Tommy Thompson has said the intention always was that this was always meant to be the case, that it would be this loop that always happened. It doesn't exactly work, but I I like the theory. Mm -hmm. But in other episodes where, you know, the whole premise of the show is you have to put right what once went wrong. And so something has to go wrong originally so that Sam can go back and change it. And then it does change and make things better. And like you say, you don't know if when something does change if that original timeline ends up erased or if that timeline still happens but everything shifts to the revised timeline where things are better mm-hmm. or, or a multiple universe sort of theory. Yeah, but the multiple timeline still exists. It's just you're in a different one. Yeah, so we don't know, but it seems like the one that it seems to lean towards most is the idea that, yes, bad things have happened, but when Sam changes it, those bad things are erased. So it's not like that timeline still exists, they're erased. Okay, but they did happen. Yeah. up And they lived in, up until that point that Sam leaped back in time and then changed the past. Yes. Okay. Then they were totally erased. Yeah, so we'd say probably totally erased, like the Back to the Future sort of um, erasure. So what do you think of my theory? I love your theory, and it makes a lot of sense. So uh, basically, the time travel has created two owls, Bingo and Bango. And the one we're seeing now, or the owl prime that we call him, is actually uh, Bingo. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's the way that I would see that I would see it, and that perfectly explains why Al has so much experience doing so much throughout his lifetime, because literally any time he wants to do something, he can just leap there, and he's not really bound by the same sort of rules that Sam is that he has to put right or wrong, and in fact, maybe this is the reason why, or at least in universe, why 
in A Leap for Lisa, it's the first time they say success has nothing to do with leaping. Who would know better than that than Al, who has been leaping for his whole life? Now, I wish you had uh, brought this up with Don before he wrote Mirror Image, uh, because I would have loved to have seen an older Dean Stockwell. They could even still do it now, maybe. Uh, But put an older Dean Stockwell in that bar somewhere, like back in the corner. Yeah. Oh, and how cool would it be if at some point the two owls met up? Yeah, man. Hey, I I, I feel a, a Quantum Leap novel coming on. Yeah. Oh, well, look, if I had any writing talent whatsoever, I'd write it. But, <laughs> but maybe maybe our resident uh, Quantum Leap writer, Christopher D. Philippus, can collaborate with me on it or something. My favorite <laughs> Chris, author. Chris, write a, bo- write a book with me. My, my favorite author. <laughs> or, Matt, or Matt, who wrote the encyclopedia. We'll, we'll get yeah. Matt as a technical advisor or something. <laughs> maybe that's why we're the B team. We're the only ones that aren't published authors. Yeah. Well, this explains why we're the B team anyway. We're the talentless ones who just yeah. have big imaginations. We ramble <laughs> and we think about timelines. Yeah. So uh, now that you've heard my theory, your theory, are there any other theories out there floating around that you've heard but you don't necessarily agree with but that might be plausible? Yeah. I have tried my hardest to try and iron out any possible discrepancies or um, contradictions in what I say, but uh, I think um, – yeah, I think we're pretty well set. Maybe the alternate ending, the mirror image, contradicts it a little bit, but there's no reason to believe that the owl that's talking. Oh, actually, maybe there is. I was going to say there's no reason to think that that owl isn't the owl that lived through Vietnam, but I guess it is because he's talking about Sam, isn't he? Um, but look, maybe that's the reason why that was cut. Could it? <laughs> could it be a combination? Of to yep. where there was a bingo and there was a bingo, but also Al is aware of both himself's multiple timelines. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. That uh, that at some point Al's become aware of both existences, I guess, and uh, maybe somehow he found a way to pull himself together. Who knows? In fact, maybe this whole thing was the therapy that Al needed in order to pull himself together. Jeez, I didn't mean for it to get that Freudian, did I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in the uh, podcast we did for the alternate ending of Mirror Image that was found, um, I, in my Quantum Deep segment in there, I said, you know, maybe the entire Quantum Leap series from start to finish is is more to do with Al's therapy more so than Sam going and putting right what once went wrong, and Sam was just the, the I suppose, medium who enabled it to happen. Um, so maybe we're looking at Al's story from start to finish instead of Sam's. Since I've heard that theory, uh, I decided next time I rewatch Quantum Leap, because I'm still, I think I'm on season five on the Blu-rays, uh, going through them, but when I start them again, I'm going to totally just view it from Al's perspective, knowing this, what we talked about now, and what you previously brought to light, and yeah. light and the uh, alternate ending also. Which is yeah. totally new information. Yeah. But I mean, even in A Leap for Lisa, we don't see the conversation between Al and Bingo where Al convinces Bingo to leap back, mm. or at least not very much of it. But I mean, I think if, you know, Bingo was at least the somewhat normal, he'd probably think, no, I'm going to get lost in time. And I was like, yeah, but you're going to have the time of your life. And, you know, it's probably the fact that older Al has experienced it already and knows exactly what an awesome life Bingo is going to have, that that's how he manages to convince Bingo to leap. Wow. I think you just made Quantum Leap even better than before, and I didn't think that was possible. Oh, well, that makes me feel pretty special. (laughs) And you know what the silly part about the whole thing is? 
Yeah, we put more thought into it than the writers did. Absolutely. Whenever we talked to them, they're like, I don't know. We just wrote an episode. I don't know. As long as it works, it works for the episode. <laughs> oh, boy. Maybe we'll have to talk to Don and Deborah and Tommy and Chris and everyone else who's involved in the writing staff and say, here's our theories. Do you want to verify them for us? <laughs> well, well, here's the deal. When they inver- in- inevitably reboot the series, we, you, me, Matt, and whoever else from our show wants to come along with us should uh, be the uh, technical advisors. That would be a good idea. You know, it's funny. I think Deborah Pratt said at uh, one of the conventions, the leap back in 2009, she was talking about how she was in the writer's room once and someone came up with a stupid idea like Al walks through a cow and comes out holding a glass of milk and she has to be a technical (laughs) advisor and say, no, it doesn't work that way. And uh, someone came up with an idea and said, well, what if there was a fridge in the imaging chamber? And she says, you could have written for this show, you know. Uh, we put more thought into it than the artists that make it. But that's the great thing about great art is everybody can interpret it how they see it. Great. You're making me feel like an English teacher now. <laughs> Instead of a math teacher. I'm a math teacher. I'm proud of it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But look, that's my theory. And I was just thinking more and more about it. And I'm like, this makes so much sense. Why didn't I think of it before? So that's uh, my theory on the two owls or Bingo Bango and the older owl, who I guess we'll call Bongo. I have been trying very hard in my head to find a reason why it doesn't work, and it just works, at least in my opinion. Maybe someone out there can come up with a reason why it doesn't work or some more evidence of why it might be better. Yeah, I'd love to hear what our listeners uh, think about these uh, theories, and I want to know if they have other ones that might work as well. So uh, it's a very interesting universe, and it's great that we can all talk about it so many years later. Absolutely. All right, so who have you been? I'm Albie. And I've been Hayden McQueenie, and we can't go forward from this timeline because we'll end up in the future of this timeline. Welcome back, everyone. As promised, here is our interview with Jean-Pierre Dorliac. Well, thanks for joining us for this one, Jean-Pierre. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. You know how much I love talking to you. (laughs) I enjoy talking to you, too. Um, And I'm excited to hear about this one. I know that this episode was really special for you because it has Brooke Shields in it, and you worked with her previously on The Blue Lagoon. Yep. Brooke is uh, a real sweetie pie. Uh, Wonderful girl, wonderful actress, very, very professional. I was thrilled to uh, get to work with her again, especially on Quantum Leap. Jean-Pierre, how long was it since you had seen her? I know that the Blue Lagoon was relatively early in her career. Do you have an idea of the gap in time? I think I saw her in 1980, and we worked about nine years later. I don't remember if Leaping of the Shrew was in in the second or third season i believe it was in the third season so it was probably in 1990 so it was almost 10 years it was season five it was five? Oh well that yeah. was longer than that <laughs> she had matured much more than when i had worked with her on blue lagoon she had gone from being a child to a very poised young lady but she was still a wonderful person uh brooke uh there's no pretentiousness about her at all. She's uh, charming, kind, 
considerate, appreciative, overall a joy to work with, uh, and her mother likewise. Uh, there's a lot of uh, bad gossip out there about how her mother was a stage mother and uh, was difficult to get along with, and none of that's true. At least I never saw any of it on the two projects I worked with her on. I first met Brooke on the phone when I was doing Blue Lagoon, and they cast her, and she was in New York, and I had to call and get her sizes to start with, which I got from her mother, and then her mother turned me over to Brooke, and Brooke was, I think, 14 at the time. I'm not, I can't, don't go by what I'm saying, but she was very demure and quiet and really didn't have anything to input into what the costumes were. I told her what the concept was, that her clothes would be uh, rags for the most part, things that were found in the trunk that they rescued from the ship uh, that was caught on fire. And um, in the book, which the movie is based on, I, I don't know if you know this, but um, Blue Lagoon was made actually twice before. It was made in the 19... 19- 18 if i'm i'm not certain of these dates after it was released it was written by a man named um i don't have that information in front of me strangely enough i have a first edition of the book when it came out which was in the early 1900s and then it was made again in 1947 with one of my favorite actresses gene simmons and i had seen it uh, the gene simmons film several times, although it wasn't in keeping with the book in any way whatsoever. They added characters and they added situations and storylines. And it was also laughable as far as the costumes go. (laughs) Strange thing was that right after the Brooke Shields Blue Lagoon came out, uh, I worked with Gene Simmons on Valley of the Dolls, or as Gene and I used to lovingly refer to it as VD. (laughs) (laughs) And we called it Valley of the Dogs. (laughs) It was an awful production. Not awful in so much as how it turned out. It was just very difficult to work with. I had two absolutely insane actresses. Not funny, funny, but certifiably insane. (laughs) And sort of resolving... The whole situation was the fact that I finally got to work with Gene Simmons, who I had come close to working with four times prior to this. And she was like one of my very, very favorite actresses while I was growing up. And I was madly in love with her and I met her and and I only fell more madly in love with her. She was the greatest lady in the world. Anyway, when Columbia decided to do The Blue Lagoon, I had read about it in The Hollywood Reporter that Randall Kleiser was going to do it. And I had met Randall Kleiser before and was uh, I had been up to do Grease. But unfortunately, at the time, I didn't have big enough credits for Paramount to consider me seriously. 
And they hired another French designer, Albert Walski, who I thought was a really, really great designer and did a good job of it. And anyway, uh, so I'd met Randall, and uh, shortly after I read this uh, just little news clip in the papers, and strangely enough, the reason I read it was it was right underneath an article about Buck Rogers in the 20th century that had just been released. And of course, it came to my attention. And shortly thereafter, I uh, met Randall and uh, we started talking and I asked him if Blue Lagoon was really going ahead and I I really would love to be considered for it. And he said, oh, unfortunately, it's going to be a very small budget film. We're shooting in Fiji and there's there's no money for a costume designer, et cetera, et cetera. So I left the party feeling rather unhappy, to say the least. But in the long run, uh, Randall talked to somebody at Columbia, and they hired me for, I think it was six weeks, maybe it was eight weeks, to do the film, do it all, and prepare it in Los Angeles, and ship it to Fiji. And it was an Australian co-production, and the majority of the crew was coming from Australia because it was closer than Los Angeles. So the art director had a wife who was a costume designer in her own right in Australia named Aphrodite Kondo. She was a Greek girl, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful girl and uh, a woman. And because John was coming to Los Angeles to discuss production design with Randall and various other people, he brought her along because she got the job of being the wardrobe lady on Blue Lagoon. And she and John stopped in Fiji before they came to L.A. And when she arrived, she gave me this big box of shells, tiny little shells that she had collected on the beach. I think we had had a telephone conversation prior to her coming. I'm almost positive we did. And I I think I might have suggested that I would really love to have... I said I was going to use a lot of shells for jewelry, etc. in the film. And uh, she took it upon herself to bring me all these beautiful shells, little tiny bright pink and orange and almost pale blue shells from Fiji which we used on the costumes. We sewed them all onto Brooks' costumes because a part of the movie in Blue Lagoon was they had a stereocom, which was one of those uh, machines that you held up and put a card in and looked through it, and you had a sort of a 3D picture of people in the turn of the century. And they had a whole series of a wedding in in this thing and uh, the wedding dress with, of course, pearls on it and so forth. So I decided that Emmeline, which was Brookshield's part, would see these things and then in turn try to emulate them by sewing little shells that she found on her garments that were taken from the trunk. During the course of talking with Afro and with Randall, I decided that, or I asked them if they could make a change in the script, because in the script originally, when they opened the trunk, it was filled with mostly men's things. It wasn't a trousseau for a marriage, which I wanted it to be. 
And there was yards of gray wool and things like that that were in the trunk. And I said to Breno, you know, this is a desert island, and I don't think gray wool is going to be at all alluring or, or wonderful to make any kind of garment out of. Can we change it? Can't we have wedding bailing there instead? And they liked the idea very much. And so things in the trunk were changed. And that's how the wedding bailing came out that uh, they used for a tent in the beginning of the movie. And then later on, it, the same fabric or fabric similar to it was then duplicated into a dress and several other pieces that Brooke draped over herself. So all of these things I sort of passed on to Brooke and her mother. And they were very excited about what I was going to do. So I uh, got all my stuff together. And everybody else's things together. We pulled all the clothes for the guys aboard the ship and for the father, William Daniels, and for, uh, of course, Richard, who was being played by Christopher Atkins, who they discovered back in Connecticut. Chris came out to Los Angeles, and I fit him in L.A. But I had to go back to do Brooke in New York because... They didn't want to fly from New York to Los Angeles and then fly to Fiji. They wanted a direct flight, and that's what they got. So we took all the clothes and put them in a box, and Afro went directly to Fiji with all the clothes except Brooks, and I went to New York with Brooks' clothes and fit her. And we met one morning very early, and it was the first time I met her, and she and her mother came in right on time and with a box of donuts and hot coffee and so forth to the fitting room that I was renting in New York from a costume company who would do the alterations. And we spent about two hours together with all of her changes in the show and sort of improvised them. And she was just delightful. And then she uh, spent about two more days in uh, New York, we had the clothes altered and repaired for them. We packed them up. I delivered them back to her and Terry at their apartment. We sat and had wine and talked and laughed. And uh, she said she was really looking forward to the film. And uh, during that time, she had her hair pieces made in New York that she wore in the film to cover herself in all the scenes in which it looked like she was naked. And then they left with the clothes and went to Fiji. And they shot there for, I think it was like two months. And I would talk to Afro on the phone and we would laugh and talk about things. And that was actually all the connection I had with uh, Brooke. So when I got the script for Leaping of the Shrew. Jean-Pierre, can I just ask you a specific question before you? That's fine. Interrupt me whenever you want. <laughs> no, I just wanted to know when they were thinking about putting Leaping of the Shrew together, was it a very deliberate riff on the Blue Lagoon? And did that have anything to do with the fact that Jean-Pierre Dorliac was the costume designer on the show? Nope, 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 nope. No, 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 no. It had more of a riff to do with Swept Away that was done by uh, Lena Wertmuller and um, that was an Italian film. Giovanni something was the lead they uh, remade that with Madonna, famously. <laughs> or infamously. <laughs> Did you have to make me ill so early in the morning? <laughs> no, it was more of a riff on that than it was on uh, Blue Lagoon. It had absolutely nothing to do with Blue Lagoon. But I have always took it upon myself when I came up with a good idea to suggest it, because that's what really 
collaboration in production is, especially for theater. So I went to Don Belisario's office and said, a great script, I really love it. Who have you got in mind to play the girl? And he said, we have a list here. Do you want to look at them and tell me who you like? And there was about uh, 25 names, and about three down was Brooke Shields' name. I went, hey, I think you should get Brooke. She would be fabulous. And think of the publicity you would get out of this, because she's already been in a Lost at Sea movie, Blue Lagoon, that I did, that was Columbia's biggest box office for 1980. And they thought it was a good idea, and that's how Brooke got cast. As I said, I have done this many times in my career, promoted somebody, as many times as I didn't promote somebody and really said some uh, informative things that eventually caused the casting and producers not to cast this actor because they were so difficult. People don't understand, especially actors, who treat costume designers insignificantly, that we wield a great deal of weight. And if you misbehave and you're difficult to deal with when you come to see me, that immediately goes to the producer because I'm the first one on a film to meet any of the actors, especially in television, because they're cast so late and they usually work the next day. And uh, I've had several actors and actresses that were cast in something that I called and they were replaced because of the input that I gave. It's not a malicious thing. It's I just don't believe in unprofessionalism and I don't want to work with people who are that way. And I talk to them and most producers agree with it the same way. Uh, So in the long run, yes, I did get Brooke Shields uh, the part in (laughs) Leaping of the Shrew and her mother said to me, well, I guess you have the insight on doing all of Brooks Lost at Sea movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so the this uh, episode was clearly uh, referencing Swept Away, but I did see some nods to Blue Lagoon in it. You'd mentioned the wedding dress that was also used in this episode. A wedding dress is like a, a tent and a sail. Was that deliberately referencing that? Yeah. When they're on the beach in Blue Lagoon and Patty builds the fire and there's this wafting fabric in the air. That's the veiling from the wedding dress. And then years later, when she runs through the jungle to go to the sacrificial altar that she finds that the cannibals did, she wears a dress that is all out of gossamer fabric that's kind of brownish colored. And that was the wedding dress that I actually personally handmade. It was done in four layers, and every single layer was hand-sewn on to look like a rag, and then I painted it with dye. And there was doubles on the dress because of all the stunts she had to go through and running through the jungle, and we weren't certain of how uh, rugged it would be and how the branches of the plants would tear at the dress or whatever. So we made two of them, and uh, I own one of them. And the dresses cost about $7,000 to make, each one of them to begin with, fabric was very expensive. It was like $60 a yard for this silk illusion, it was called. And we used a lot of it because it was so wispy and so thin. It was even 
thinner and finer than like a Kleenex is. And so I wanted this dress to look like it was something that was just improvised. And it did, but it was a great challenge to create that look as well as it came out. I imagine the one in the Quantum Leap episode has less of a story, the the wedding dress. Was that something that you designed as well? I don't remember a wedding dress. I remember... There was one used for a sale, but it wasn't something she wore, so it might have been something they pulled. Right. Yes, I remember that. That was in her trunk, and they turned it into a sale. Mm -hmm. That was... Yes, it was designed. It was designed because... She was never going to wear it, but, oh, I, it was designed because, one, we couldn't find a turn-of-the-century dress that was in good enough condition. And secondly, I didn't know how much wear and tear it would go. So, yes, it was designed, but I think it was destroyed in the shoot, and it, it doesn't exist. All of that stuff that when he pulls all the stuff out of the trunk in Leaping of the Shrew and says we have to get rid of the weight and so forth, there was belts and shoes and various <laughs> other things. And all of those things were designed because we had to have triples on them as we didn't know how many times they would have to do the take. And you always have to consider these things as a costume designer. Uh, it's just as essential as creating a look for the show. You have to create ideas and costumes that will work better on the film. This film had a great example of this. In the beginning, she is aboard this yacht in the Mediterranean, I believe it was. And she was at a cocktail party when the yacht caught fire and she jumps overboard. Well, we wanted something that would be gorgeous as a cocktail dress for the period. But we also wanted something that once she was in the water would give you kind of an indication of what a ding dong she was. <laughs> I decided to use a balloon gown of the period where the hem was all turned up at the bottom. It was didn't fall straight like most dresses do. It turned under and it was supported by an underslip so that it created a bubble, a balloon effect. It was called a balloon dress during the time. It only came out in 1957 and the style only lasted one year. It was the same year that the sack dress became very popular in fashion. And in designing this dress, I also knew that I needed to do something that had some decor around the neck because she was going to be in the water and we had to make her look like she had a lot of money. So I specifically designed it with a crisscross top that went around her neck so that the, and, and then jeweled it with uh, rhinestones uh, and beads so she wouldn't have to wear jewelry because I knew that being in the water as long as she would be in shooting this would create a major problem for my wardrobe people if she was wearing a necklace and it fell off during shooting and then they would have to dive four feet into the tank. All of the water sequence stuff was shot in a tank that was four feet deep on Paramount Studios 
And it looks like the ocean, but that was how we do movies. There was waves in the tank and so forth and so on. But actually, both she and uh, Scott could um, stand in the tank. It wasn't that deep. So we did this dress so that one, when she fell in the water, it would all balloon up around her. It wouldn't catch water and then sink underneath the water like most dresses did. And secondly, she would still look glamorous to some extent, even with her hair all wet and, and her makeup running and so forth. It was part of, as I said, one of the specifics of what costume designing is all about. Unfortunately, that's rarely taught anymore. I was very lucky in my career because I came from a long history of theater before I actually was in films. Before I started making movies in France and around the world, I had done close to 36 productions on stage and designed all of them. And as a stage costume designer, there's you and maybe one other person and then the wardrobe lady who dresses everything, everybody in the theater is responsible for the costume. But you don't have a crew. You have it's basically you doing everything. So I had a lot of experience and learned a great deal over the years before I ever got into films. And I brought all of this stuff along with me, which helped me immensely in doing my job very well and having things there. Because I had learned in theater that the quicker you could get all the costumes together, the easier it was in the long run. Because there's always, and I underline this, always something about a production that comes up that is a catastrophe in one way or another. And they either change things and want something designed, or the director doesn't like something and he wants it designed. There's always problems to meet and if you have most of your work done ahead of time, then you're not thrown when a problem arises because you have time to take care of it without a major hassle, which a lot of costume designers today, as I said, are not trained to do. And therefore, when they have not proceeded to get their act together as much as possible, when these confrontations, these problems come up, they're really thrown it throws them off. They get behind time. They lose time. A lot of things occur, and there's a lot of frustration because of it. I tried to keep that out of my career as much as possible because I knew from my years of experience that just like in life, you never know what's going to happen tomorrow, and you have to be prepared for it beforehand. So that was... Um, a lot of the reasons why what was done in Leaping of the Shrew was done, there was a lot that was specific that was never mentioned in the script as to why things were what they were, but there was a reason for them. Almost as much reason as the silly little sailor outfit, her son outfit that was, I mean, please. I wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> she looks like the crackerjack man. I loved that sailor outfit. <laughs> Is that something that you had to make uh, a lot more copies for? Because that one, I believe she was wearing that during the mud fight. Yeah, there were three copies of it, and there's two left. 
and I own both of them, and I, I've been trying to sell them for years. They cost about $10,000 a piece, but I'm willing to let them go for 5000 each because, um, because of, the, of who wore them and that it was a very wonderful costume, and uh, she wore it a long time in the film. Can people uh, contact you through your site to purchase that if they want to? Just go to my website, and uh, there's a way you can uh, contact me. There's an email address there if they want to get in touch with me. If I tell you what it is, S-P-C-L-S-M-T-H-I-N at AOL.com. That's my business uh, email address. And we will uh, include a link to that on the show page for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast for sure. So listeners, check it out. I wanted to ask, since you had to make sort of a progression, they weren't on the island that long. It seems to me that... Yes, uh, they are on the island that long because at the end they decide not to leave, remember. Right, right. But you didn't have to go the nine years in the future with the six kids. But were you conscious in the process of dressing Brooke to have things slowly deteriorate as the shoot went on for continuity's sake? No, because it was such a short period of time that the actual story took place. We aged things in a way when she had the mud fight and so forth. That was all done with um, Fuller's Earth, which is a powder that you mix with water and it looks like mud that you put on clothes that can wash out very easily. We aged things that way. Uh, we didn't really do any deconstruction of any of the clothes, mainly because... Uh, it was a love story. It was it was the fantasy. And we were more interested in making Brooke look very attractive. We were trying more so to go for her character that she would have the silly clothes that she had with her that, uh, I mean, not too many people end up on a desert island wearing a, a kimono robe with a negligee, matching negligee underneath it. But... <laughs> That was my prerogative to do so as the costume designer. And none of my designs are done thoroughly on my own impetus. There were sketches. There's a sketch of the cocktail dress, the melon silk cocktail dress. And there's a sketch of the sun suit. And all of those went to Don Belisario beforehand, before I even started making them or even choosing the fabric, or actually even the colors he approved everything. I used to do a lot of black and white sketches and Xerox them and send them over to his office. And then he would, they'd call back and say, Don loves them. Don and I had a very, very wonderful relationship. I had worked with him ever since Battlestar Galactica. And I had worked on Tales of the Gold Monkey. And I had worked on Magnum P.I. And I had worked on Airwolf and... Uh, so uh, by the time I got to Quantum Leap, he rarely ever said too much about the costumes. I can only recall one situation in which we had a confrontation about one of the costumes in the show. But other than that, he generally approved all of them immediately. The kimono and the dress uh, that uh, Brooke wore in Leaping of the Shrew, there were like some leaves on it that looked like they were maybe hand-painted. Yep. They were leaves and sort of like, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the plant exactly, but it was very Asian looking. It, it was actually 
taken from a concept of a kimono that I had in stock that I liked, but the colors were wrong, and so I had it duplicated. And and then I had the uh, did a pattern for the negligee and decided where on the negligee I wanted print that would be seen. So we put it in the front at the bottom so that when she stood, you could see it. And it was underneath one of her breasts. I remember, I think it was on the left-hand side. And there's just some in the back. It was all over. It was a scattered design, in, but not a repetitive design like in a Hawaiian shirt or something like that. It was all hand-painted. Both of the pieces were all hand-painted. That's great. I thought that was gorgeous. Oh, thank you. I thought it fit the feeling of the uh, story very well, that it was supposed to be a deserted island. Actually, we didn't shoot that on an island at all. We shot it on the coastline at San Pedro, uh, which is about an hour south of Los Angeles. And um, there was a big park above the cliffs there that we had shot other episodes of Quantum Leap on, like uh, the episodes when he was an undercover hippie. It was the only show we ever did about the hippies because Don Belsire was very adamant about the hippie movement during that period and never wanted to really do it. So he did it. we did it peripherally. And we shot in the park there. And then we went back for, and we came down a long road and so forth to a beach area that was practically deserted. And there was that little area there where there was a lot of trees and they built the waterfall and so forth that was in the film. Oh, okay. That wasn't part of anything. It was all set design. That's neat. I know it was decidedly less glamorous, but what kind of thought went into Scott's costume for the episode? A pair of pants and a (laughs) t-shirt. There was a scarf, too. Let's not forget the scarf. (laughs) There was a scarf, yeah. And the reason I asked is because knowing you, you probably researched what sailors wore in the 50s on the Mediterranean on pleasure yachts and created it, recreated it exactly. I did too much research on that. I knew that very well. All I was certain of was trying to find a T-shirt that was cut like the 50s and pants. And um, none of his clothes were made on this. The only stuff male's clothes were made were Dean's clothes like they usually were. And as I have discussed with Allison before, in Quantum Leap and in every TV series, there's money to be considered. And so... When they choose scripts and ideas, they choose scripts that have a lot of production to them, like the Man of La Mancha script that we did, like Glitter Rock that we did. A lot of money went into those because of the costumes specifically, because there was a lot of people and a lot of stuff that had to be made that you weren't able to go out and buy it, and because of triples and so forth and so on. So to compensate for one show where my budget was maybe $25,000, they couldn't give me $25,000 for every show, so they would write what were called elevator shows. And an elevator show was a small show where 
there were two or three people in it, and it took place in one set. One that I can remember distinctly outside of this one was the one, the Bermuda Triangle, when they were flying over that in a plane, and there was only like four people in the plane and there was no change of clothes, and it all took place in the plane. And the other one was Killing Time, when he played the killer, and they had to go find the killer who had gotten loose. And uh, with the exception of the prostitute whose costume lit up in that, everything else was just the mother and the little girl and the sheriff and the posse outside, and and Gucci, and and that's it. So Leaping of the Shrew was basically an elevator show, except they did give me more money because when they got Brooke, of course, they wanted it to have an air of glamour around it because of her being a model and that she's so pretty. I haven't gone to the fact that um, after all these years of not having seen Brooke and she came back, she had matured and was quite a young lady, but she was still... The sweetest, nicest, kindest person. Never, ever once did Brooke pull a movie star act on me like so many actresses do. She never was demanding. She never kept you waiting. She was always there on time. I cannot say enough about her other than the fact that I really feel that uh, Hollywood, which is not unusual, gave her a bad break and passed her off as just being a model who had no talent. But I think Brooke really had a great deal more talent than they gave her credit for, especially when she went on after she quit doing films and started doing theater and started doing musicals. And uh, I, she was brilliant in all of them. So I, I can't say enough about Brooke Shields. I adored her. I loved her. We've run into each other many times. When I was nominated for an Academy Award, she appeared at the Academy uh, presentation the, that evening, and she was with Franco Zeffirelli. She had just done Endless Love. And um, she came up and um, just gave me a big hug and a kiss and told me how wonderful it was that I would, had been nominated for an Academy Award and how much I deserved it. And that meant so much to me to be at a big occasion like that and to have that kind of attention from Brooke Shields. Oh, that's great. Jean-Pierre, we, we usually have uh, on the podcast, since Allison has joined us, basically like a fashion watch segment where she loves, <laughs> she loves, loves, loves to talk about Al's fashions. And we now have the man himself on the phone uh, responsible for that look. Can you tell us a little bit about any special considerations that went to Al's outfits for this episode, uh, if there were any, because of the comparatively drab setting? To be very honest with you, I can't tell you what he even wore in this episode uh, <laughs> because uh, his clothes were basically um, – actually, Don started Quantum Leap and they shot the pilot and I wasn't on the show. I don't know. I think I was busy doing another film or something at the time. But he found out after the pilot was shot and he didn't like it at all. He didn't like Al's clothes. He didn't like – several other things in the show. He thought that found out that I was available and I was called in. And they actually hired me specifically to take care of Al primarily because they wanted a very hedonistic look for him. So my concept of what he wore was 
borderline garish. That was what I went with when I started the show. I wanted him to wear stuff that nobody else would wear, usually in bright colors, which we had a very difficult time with in the first episode because I only had a very short time before they reshot the things that they wanted to with him to find stuff. And at the time, I didn't have really enough time to make anything. So I had to purchase most everything. And I went out to Melrose Avenue, which was sort of the in spot for hip clothes at the time. But there was nothing, absolutely nothing on the market that was in color. Everything was in blacks and grays and beige and all this stuff. I I couldn't find anything with any color. And I remember buying shirts and dyeing one of them to get a color just for the film. But then after, when I was definitely doing the whole series, and I started designing all of Al's things, I went for crazy. That's the only thing I can tell you. I kept trying to put things together that nobody else was wearing. There was no intentions behind it to do anything that would be anything more than attention-getting, which I'm not, truthfully, I don't care for that, really, in people's dress. I don't like people who wear something that is so rememberable that that if you see it again, it's a joke. I was told this many, many years ago by several designers and, and Marlena Dietrich, of all people, that to keep my stuff very classic and not do things just for the period, but make it look close to the period, but don't pigeonhole it so that 10 years from now, they could look at the movie and go, oh, it doesn't work now because those are 1972 clothes. So I tried to stay away from that. And Marlena Dietrich told me a story about this woman who had made this outfit with this big cape that was very ostentatious. And the first time she wore it, everybody went, ooh, ah, look at that fabulous cape she's wearing. And Marlena said, but then when it came around about the third time, people were saying, oh, here comes so-and-so in that fucking cape again. (laughs) (laughs) I always kept that story in the back of my mind. And in this case, I wanted stuff for Al that people would go, oh, God, here he comes in that (laughs) shirt with the cutout collars again. And now... (laughs) After all these years have gone by, everybody loves Al's clothes. and They weren't done to be loved. They're great. But the very funny thing is, the fashion picked up on all of it. And the designs I use for him, I see them over and over again. And other designers work today. And for the last 10, 15 years, I've seen the clothes duplicate, especially the collars on the suits that I did and the cutout work and the double collars on the lapels and things like that. A lot of stuff I did has been emulated, more or less to say. And it's quite an honor, but it never was intentionally done. And so it makes me laugh uh, after all these years of 
me trying to be ostentatious and kind of silly that now people have found it to be very stylish and very in. So thank you very much for loving them. <laughs> well, I have to say they were crazy. So you scored there. They were garish. You got that right, too. But they were also they're just impeccable. Like everything about them is they just scream quality. And I think that's really what makes them stand out. Oh, thank you. That's like I said about designs that I choose to go with. Um, Even in choosing his things, I still tried to stay with classic things that were acceptable, even though they were outrageous. I didn't want Al to be a clown. I wanted him to be wild and, and crazy, but I didn't want him to be silly. I wanted him to be funny, but I did not want him to be silly. And uh, it was a narrow line that you had to balance, but I thought we kept it pretty clean most of the time. It's interesting that you say you didn't work on the pilot. I actually didn't know that. They reused an outfit from... Wait, 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 wait. wait. What you saw was what I did. Oh, they reshot it. They reshot it. Oh. All of his clothes that he wore in the pilot, all those scenes were reshot with stuff that I did. Like the when he's aboard the plane and he's in that huge duster with the the hat on, uh, the duster that flies in the wind inside the plane. That was all my doings. That that was stuff I pulled together. Oh, see, I had no idea. Um, well, then that leads into my next question that I, I wanted to ask about. There was a, an outfit from the pilot they reused in Leaping of the Shrew, which was the um, pajamas and the hand-painted robe. Oh, the polka-dotted robe? Yeah. Yeah, that was from the pilot, too. Al had a closet. And like I said, when it was an elevator show, I would sometimes design two changes. If he had like four changes, I would design two. And then I would pull the other two changes from things he had worn before. He was the only person in Quantum Leap who ever duplicated his clothes. Scott never wore anything twice because he was always in a different period and was a different character. Well, that's great. This is all great stuff. Um, I think I'm about out of questions for this particular episode. Was there anything else uh, that you wanted to let people know about the experience or the process um, doing Leaping of the Shrew? Oh, no. Other than to say that Quantum Leap was a, a wonderful project to get to do. I don't think there's anything that I had more fun with in my career than the show. Like I said, I had had a long-standing relationship with Belisario, which made it very wonderful. And Scott was uh, more than eager and anxious that this was be a success, and he gave it all, and so did Dean. And, and, and I had a great crew. And so every show we did was really a, a jewel in its own right. Occasionally, we had people who were on the show, who made my life difficult. I have to bring this up just to add one little story. I watched uh, the Americanization of Machiko McKenzie the other night, which was one of my very favorite episodes because I had lived in Japan and I'd spent many years uh, studying Japanese clothing, kimonos and so forth, kabuki and no costumes. And so I was thrilled to be able to use some of that knowledge in uh, the Americanization of Machiko. But in the course of the show, there was a character in the show, 
a woman who was written in the script to be a big, heavy set woman who was going to sing at the wedding at the end. And they hired Pat Ast, who was one of the Andy Warhol people. And she was, ugh, real <laughs> gross to say the least. She was huge and she sweat like an elephant. And there was absolutely no clothes to fit her from stock. And she wasn't a big enough name to deserve emoed clothes, made to order clothes. And there wasn't, wasn't any budget, but I had no choice. Uh, I went to them and said, I, you guys cast her. There's nothing in her size. I have to have something for her to wear. So I have to have some money to build her some clothes. Well, we made two dresses, one for her to wear at the picnic where we first see her when Machiko says to her, oh, you are a fat lady uh, and insults her. And then at the end where she sang at the wedding, well, that ass turned out to be a real ass. Her name was A-S-T, but she was an A-S-S. And she caused so much problems and was so difficult and was always late and never knew her lines and everything. Well, they cut her out of the entire movie. The only scene she has is sitting at the picnic table with one line. And the whole scene where I made the dress for the wedding, for the singing and so forth, they, they didn't even shoot it. They just said to her, we're not using this scene. And they cut it out of the script and they didn't call her in that day. Occasionally, we had people very occasionally, not very often, as I'm trying to say, who made life difficult. But that's true of almost every show you do. There's always a bad apple that spoils it for somebody else. But for the most part, everybody we had on the show were absolutely superior people to work for. And I, I have to insert here that there were a lot of people who I've worked with in my life who are not pencil thin who i absolutely adore so has nothing to do with the size of a person liz torres who was in the one about the angel and the cab driver that i can't remember the name of it now liz is not a small person but i adored liz liz was wonderful to work with and a lady named ann ramsey who was in who played mama in throw mama from the train who had this real craggy looking face like a bulldog she was not an easy lady to dress because she was very huge and she had very broad shoulders and no bust and big hips she was a doll to work with i just adored ann ramsey more than a lot of more than Raquel welch i can say that <laughs> so it has nothing to do with size it has to do with how professional you are as to how wonderful you are to work with. People who think of themselves as being big movie stars and they want you to cater to them and bend over backwards for them for just that reason alone. I'm sorry, but I've never fallen in for that. I don't believe that just because you have a name and so forth, but no talent, does that require you to get anything any special privileges and i just am not that way i behave very professionally i do my job and i expect people to do the same thing i don't like people who are pretentious and have an air about him that they're better than anybody else nobody is better than anybody else in this world we're all equal i think all of us are individuals and we all deserve the respect 
that we would help hope other people show to us. And that's been my attitude and my way of working all my career. Well, thank you so much, Jean-Pierre, for sharing your experience with us on Leaping of the Shrew and Quantum Leap in general. It's wonderful to have you back on the podcast and to get an update from you. Um, we for sure will also put a link in for your book, The Naked Truth, on the show page for this episode. And uh, we encourage everybody to go check it out. And if you have, you know, a spare five ten thousand dollars $10,000 lying around, maybe you can get one of those sailor suits. You never know. <laughs> yeah, the... I have a lot of costumes from the show. I was able to keep a great deal more than any other because we ran for so long. So I have lots and lots of suits for Al. And occasionally there's pieces like a tie bar or a tie. But for the majority of the things that I kept, they're all ensemble pieces, meaning it's the hat, it's the shirt, it's the tie, it's the cufflinks, it's the belt, it's the shirt, the suit and the shoes and the socks. So when I sell a costume, I'm not selling piecemeal, I'm selling a whole look. And most of Dean's clothes, just his suits alone, were usually around seven to $10,000 to make because they had to be made quickly, they had to be made for him. And Dean had specific size situations that had to be met. He's uh, 5'9", and his arms are like a 31-inch, which is unusual. Usually a man of that size is, has longer arms. So a lot of Dean's things were made, and they're very specific for that reason. And that's why when people write me and ask me, because I get letters all the time. I had a letter just last week from somebody who wrote me if I had any of Al's clothes for sale. And I wrote them back and I gave him a list, but I never heard from him. But then again, I really didn't expect to. I think right now, during what we're going through in this terrible pandemic is uh, not the time to be selling costumes. But maybe in the future, if people want things, they know where to, they can contact me. And I thank both you, Alice and Chris, for talking to me today and showing the interest you have. It means a great deal to me, especially after all these years, um, as I noticed that uh, most of you who I'm talking to now never saw the show when it originally was released, but have seen it in re-releases time and again. And to know that it held up for over 35 years like it has done it's a great compliment. So thank you guys so much. Well, thank you, Jean-Pierre. And I always love talking to you. Um, we learned some great stuff today. And uh, yeah, I just uh, really appreciate you taking the time. No problem. Allison, thank you so much for securing that interview. I know that uh, Jean-Pierre and you go back and forth on Twitter all the time, but uh, it's nice when you share the wealth. And I had a ball talking to him. <laughs> He's such a funny guy. No problem. Yeah. Yeah, it was great talking to him. I'm glad that he was up for doing another interview. Uh, talked about things that uh, I didn't even know about um, – the fact that uh, the pilot, he didn't do the costumes initially, and they reshot uh, Al's bits with his costumes. I never knew that before that interview. It was really cool. Yeah, that's an amazing bit of trivia. Yeah. And it shows you just how integral he's been with the look of the show since the beginning. I mean, to the point where they brought him in to fix stuff. 
right there at the beginning. So they knew they had their man. And I also loved that he sent us shots behind the scenes of Brooke like diving into the tank and sketches of the costumes. And uh, you can find all of that on the show page for this episode at our website, quantumleappodcast.com. Just look for the Leaping of the Shrew page and uh, I'll have those featured there. So it was really great. And thank you, Jean-Pierre. Yes, thank you. It was uh, it was really great seeing those pictures of um, her in the costume, the uh, the the pink red dress from the beginning uh, before it was wet. Yeah. So you get to see like actually the dry version of <laughs> right it before they ruined it. <laughs> yeah, before they ruined it, and her jumping into the tank. So you get to kind of see the setup with the tank there. Uh, so that's it's yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I don't mind that it shattered my illusion that they were at sea. I was so convinced. Oh, until you saw that, <laughs> you thought they were really at sea with a wrinkly sky. Oh man. <laughs> All right, now that we've heard from the man, the legend, Jean-Pierre Dorliac, uh, we have more things to hear. We are hearing from our listeners. Uh, guys, we have some feedback. Ooh. Woohoo, feedback. Yay, we love it. Feedback. Feedback's the best. And this is a letter that we received from a listener named Keith Patty. And he is writing to us, believe it or not, about, well, I, maybe my second least favorite episode. It's not dreams. It's not dreams. It's not dreams. The poise, the poise ding. ding. Uh, wow. Um, so it just struck me like, <laughs> who's talking about the plays the thing? Obviously, Keith is talking about plays the thing. So uh, why don't we do what we usually do, guys? I'll do the first paragraph. Allison, do the second paragraph. Matt, you can you can bring us home. So sure. Keith writes, my name is Keith. I'm a Xennial. Is that Xennial? I don't know what that is. I, I've been checking into this. It's either Xennial or Xen. I say Xennial, but apparently there are two equally valid pronunciations. I like Xennial because it makes Keith sound like a superhero. So Keith yeah. is like he's an Xennial. Xennial sounds like a like a flower to me. <laughs> so <laughs> Xennial or Xennial, which one? I like Xennial. Xennial. Okay, so Keith, we're now envisioning you in yellow spandex. Hey, whoa! I'm an Xennial as well, dude. <laughs> That was an X-Man reference. Yeah. <laughs> Keithy Xennial writes, I was an Xennial, so I was a little boy when The Plays The Thing premiered in 1992. If I had to choose a favorite, I'd suppose I'd have to go with Jimmy. That's only because that episode shows the societal perception of the mentally challenged in 1964. Also, on an even more personal level, while I've never been that close to my brother, it's gratifying to see Frank be such a good brother to Jimmy, saying, no matter what happens, I still love you, when Jimmy goes for the job interview. To me, The Plays the Thing isn't that good of an episode, despite being original, even for the early 1990s, by foreshadowing the idea of a cougar. I'm not kidding, neither. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Cougars have existed long before. I'm, I hate to break. <laughs> it did not foreshadow the idea of a cougar. They weren't called them back then, though, right? I think cougar is more of a modern term for it maybe i think maybe that maybe. was the age where keith discovered cougars and maybe an interest of his yeah. own so maybe there's a little bit more <laughs> keith in this than it's than, foreshadowing his than interest than cougar in history yeah exactly um <laughs> Uh, what makes it frustrating, though, is that despite so many minutes to tell a story, there wasn't any backstory to how Joe and Jane met, let alone became a couple. Furthermore, like you hinted in the podcast, evidently Jane must have inherited buco bucks to afford to live in NYC in that nice of an apartment, but that's never established neither. I'll be frank. I'll be frank. <laughs> 
Uh, I'll be frank and tell you that I'm biased in how I see this episode, only because it's so romance-centric and I'm jealous of Joe. <laughs> I even spent a few years of my 20s trying to date an older woman, seriously, because of this episode. <laughs> wow. It wasn't just this episode, mind you, but it did give me the template for dating a woman who was 45 when I was 24. It didn't come to fruition, though. Oh my oh, god. Oh, poor Keith. Deliver us from evil is what got me into evil, scary women. it got you into caroline seymour specifically yes oh bless her anyway keith goes on to say i really really like your review though you made a lot of interesting observations like determining joe really was not there to sponge off jane and that ted sincerely did have jane's best interests at heart not wanting her to risk joe leaving her when he got bored neil too was portrayed as not wanting to be controlling but rather to protect his mother from possibly being used that was actually rather profound character development in my opinion What really made me enjoy your podcast was what Alison pointed out about how Sam's heart is in the right place, saying something like, you should never give up on your dreams. Yeah, Alison mentioning dreams is always uh, always, (laughs) always a good... (laughs) Never give up on your dreams. But but he's likely uh, so positive because all his dreams up to and including discovering time travel have come true. He doesn't realise not everyone's dreams come true, and when they don't come true, that's very disappointing. It's a debate that probably will never be resolved definitively. Should I keep trying and not give up? Or should I recognise that I've reached the point of diminishing returns? You all did a great job. Thanks so much. Keith. This is an amazing bit of (laughs) feedback. Yeah. Yeah. There was so much that we learned about Keith in this. (laughs) It was was so good. I loved all of this. Um, And I'm glad that uh, he enjoyed our take on that episode. And... um, yeah, thank you for sending us uh, all of that. It's a very great story. And yeah. what do you guys think? Should I keep trying and not give up, or should I recognize that I've reached the point of diminishing returns when it comes to talking into a microphone? What do you think? Never, <laughs> never give up. I think like um, you should stop trying to say that it's uh, not Sam's body <laughs> leaping. <laughs> You've reached the point of diminishing returns. We have not gotten to running for honor yet, so I will cling to that notion until I have no choice any longer. All right, you got one more week of, uh, <laughs> of, of naive bliss. I will never, ever give up the fight. <laughs> I don't care if Sam walks with no legs. Do you think the mummy knew that it was actually his body leaping? <laughs> <laughs> I think the mummy just had a taste for flesh, obviously. <laughs> kind of like. Keith had a taste for cougars, and uh, if you want to be like Keith and give us too much information, we would love <laughs> to hear what you have to say. I don't think it was too much information. <laughs> it was just the right amount. <laughs> it was great. That foreshadowed cougars. And it was wonderfully structured as well. I love how Keith just kind of opened with some some interesting observations about Jimmy and his family and, and slowly led us towards suddenly, boom, <laughs> I tried to have sex with women that reminded me of that lady that was once in that Quantum Leap episode. He's just said that he wanted to date a woman who was older and that he thought she was great, but it didn't happen. He did, There was nothing, <laughs> I, I, I great. nothing dirty about this. I love it. It's a roller coaster of a piece of feedback. Thank you, Keith. That's great. Thank you, Keith. And uh, there are many ways that you can reach us here on the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can get us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com like Keith did. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at QuantumLeapPod, and you can always go that extra mile and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash QuantumLeapPodcast. Just remember, we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And speaking of upcoming episodes, Matt, what's coming up next? I've got a bit of a problem here, guys, because I usually like to prepare some kind of puntastic lead into the episode, but... uh... I can't do it because Tommy Thompson has actually already given us the most puntastic title, so I, I've just got to name it. N- next week, it's nowhere to run. Dr. Parker, Dr. Phil Parker. Can you hear him? He's out there. Ooh. Charlie, he's coming over the wire. He's going to kill us all. We got to get out of here. He's going to cut our heads off. Don't you fight me or I'll break your freaking neck. Saying that isn't uh, necessary, is it? Sam, huh? don't get up. Why not? Sam, don't move. I, I, I can't make a joke about somebody without legs not being able to run. <laughs> he's, he's just, he's stolen my thunder. Did he uh, ruin your running gag? Oh. Oh. Put the rim shot in right after that one, Allison. You know what, Matt? If you want, you can complain to Tommy about that in person because <gasps> Tommy Thompson will be joining us on the next episode of the podcast as a guest host. Heck yeah! Now, Hayden reached out to him regarding this episode, and this is a very special episode for Tommy. And he said he would definitely love to come back to the podcast and talk to us about it. So Fabulous. we're going to be doing a sort of special guest hosting next time with Tommy Thompson. So we have that to look forward to. I can't wait to talk to him. He's such a great guy. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love talking to him the last time. And this episode in particular, I actually, I really want wanted to know his thoughts on this because I know just from the topic of it that it had to be something very personal mm-hmm. to him. So yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to hear what he's going to say about it. So yeah, we'll be hearing from Tommy and uh, hopefully we'll get all the answers that we're seeking. Until then, I've been Christopher DeFilippis. I've been Allison Pregler. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher DeFilippis, and Allison Pregler. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Morgan Felden is the producer. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baron Space production. Brit Boy. What? <laughs> I didn't hear what you said, Matt. What? Brit Boy. You didn't hear me because of my accent. <laughs> what is Grit Boy or Brit Boy? Brit, I'm so Brit Boy. Brit, Brit Boy. I thought, you said, British. I thought you said Grits Boy. Brit Boy. Like, Brit Boy. Oh, he loves grits. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God.
So you, shave them. You, wipe them.